Buongiorno. From the neon washed rooftops of cinema, this is the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies nobody else wants to talk about. This is episode number 16, and my name is Jakob. My name is Carson. My name is Nick. My name is Jack. My name is Kevin. Hi, glad to have you with us. As, as you may already uh, figure out, if you can count to five, there's there's still five of us on the, on the roster, so that's great. Anyway, so today, after some rescheduling, we are finally talking about Michael Mann's Miami Vice. However, before we do, I have a few housekeeping items I wanted to touch on. Well, not exactly housekeeping, but a few items I wanted to touch on. First of all, in episode 14, we talked about Crow. I, and I did reach out directly to Randy, our first, um, let's just call official fan, and asked if he remembered if Crow was a thing in the 80s, because I was born a few years later and, and than he was, and I frankly might have missed out on it. And then I was hoping that he may have not. But it turns out, um, uh, well, we might have to cast our net a bit wider in the search for answers. And then I'll just quote from what Randy's just wrote to us. Uh, so Randy writes, I haven't seen Crawl as a kid or otherwise. I remember Hulkamania, but not Cruelomania, I'm afraid. Honestly, I don't recall Crawl resonating in the popular culture of the time. I think that's kind of like that's why it bombed. <laughs> um it was crushed in 1983 by Return of the Jedi, I will say, though, and you touched upon this in the episode. It seemed that in the 80s, you couldn't attempt sci-fi fantasy epics or even big budget action unless you had cool accessories. This is probably influenced by Star Wars and its lightsabers. Conan had his sword, Tron had its discs, Rambo had a bow and arrow, and plenty of films had oversized machine guns. And Crawl had a glaive, and I do remember the glaive and its prominent positioning on VHS co- uh, cases and posters. So he makes an interesting observation. I don't know if you have any comments, like that's probably some a, a place to kind of shout, shout out now. And, you know, but it was an interesting observation, at least I find. Nothing yeah, it'd be to interesting to see like a revival of Crawl. I can see this being like rebooted in some weird way, like two years, three years, once Disney acquires the property. Let's get Danny Villeneuve on this. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Anyway, so that's that's just, I said that in the app. I said in the app I want Did this you? to be like a six to eight episode series rebooted. Like, let's make it because there's so much potential in this world. Oh yeah, I don't know. yeah. Yes, you did mention. Like, and then <laughs> I'm still waiting for all these donations so I can get a Glade tattoo. But you know. We'll move on. Well, well, we may have to use. Um, so subscribe to our Patreon to two bucks a month. We'll and then you know, like, if you don't want to donate to uh, Kofi, and then we'll get Carson his tattoo. I'm pro- I promise. All we <laughs> need is like a hundred patrons. Yeah, for a no, month. No, that feels doable. Or twenty patrons for five months. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or five patrons for twenty months. To be clear, the Patreon money is going towards actually like good stuff. <laughs> This is not going. I mean, this is good stuff. I'm, I'm, I don't know what Jack thinks, but I think this is good stuff. <laughs> uh, I think in the name of cruel, I'm right. that's frightening. But you do you, Carson. Yeah. You do you. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so that's one thing. About boost, and... It's about boosting you know, <laughs> engagement. Jack, I'm doing it for Clapper, not because yeah, I, I actually like, like, like it. Like we're, <laughs> you, you proclaim the idea you've probably been going over that in your head and saying I'm doing it for the I'm doing it for the well-being of the program. Like you, 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 you do that for yourself, but I can't. I'm not going to help you there. Okay, Don't well, get it done. That's instead of the uh, in, instead of the, the instead of your tattoo, I think we need to just 
devote this money to like quick crash course in marketing for Jack because you clearly don't understand the idea of like Jesus Christ, play 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 along. <laughs> no, I can't do it. I'm not gonna let him, I'm not gonna put a tattoo on his body of cruel. And no one's fucking but, seen aside from three people in here and Randy. I'm sorry. And yeah. I'm sorry, not to judge. And Randy but, only like, saw it because no we, we talked about it. So, you know. <laughs> you were not born after 1983. You said yourself. Uh, no, I was born in 1984. But, like, uh, I think I became aware of films, like, much later. Like, Crow was already dead. Like, my older... So, like, the people I hung out, hung out with had older brothers. And they would have been, like, oh, you know, crawl this, crawl that, or whatever, like Willow and shit like this. Like, they would be, like, six, seven years older than us. And then... Oh, Willow, be... Willow's superior. Uh, crawl's nothing. That's, that's... <clears throat> Willow's on the B-list. <laughs> no, that's a... Little Warwick Davis, Ooh. like... Oh, they have a show coming out for that. Treasure. And Cal, um, Val Kilmer's probably mo- one of the most underrated actors going. Yeah. That, that's ridiculous, that statement. That's, if we're starting off with that bullshit, then oh, there's going to be an absolute shit show. Anyway, okay, so, so that's one bit of housekeeping the other one i just wanted to say and if you uh, follow me personally on twitter talk about film you may also know that in the next five weeks or so we will be doing an episode on the cannonball run so and um, and by the way i so this is what uh, i went and bought the uh, thing on blu-ray however when the package arrived um it turned out that the seller mistakenly sent me cannonball run 2 <laughs> so i ordered it again from elsewhere and contacted the seller and asked what yeah what what, what do i do right and then they were very sort of apologetic and immediately kind of just offered me uh, that they will send out another copy. And then they said, oh, you can keep the, uh, the other one for free. I don't mind. Um, so I so I honestly kind of didn't expect that. I was thinking oh, I'll have to just send it back or whatever. And I didn't, you know, or just get a refund. Uh, but then again, as a result, I have two copies of the Cannonball run on Blu-ray sealed, untouched. So I was, I was just thought, what I do is I'll use this opportunity to stage a giveaway on Twitter. This will go live on the 15th of May, I think, or something like that. So probably then I'll I'll, I'll do this. So, uh, yeah, because we'll be talking about uh, about this on the episode and then whatever. Like, let's boost our engagement and, you know. I assume UK only. Um, it's region two. So, um, so what I'm thinking is if I can figure it out, I could possibly ship it to UK, Republic of Ireland, of Ireland and the EU. But yeah, I I did check the Blu-ray is region two, so I think I wouldn't be able to ship it to America with without people having to buy like I don't know region three Blu-ray players. I was going to make cost the, would um, also be a lot. To be yeah. yeah, I was going to make the joke that you could give that film away, but no, no, no. Like please, like, see, <laughs> this is crash course in marketing. Don't heckle. This is this is engagement. <laughs> I'm not heckling. I just I think if, <laughs> if 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 that showcases what people think of Cannibal Run two, like, no, fuck it, keep it. <laughs> that doesn't hold no. much. <laughs> what I'm saying, what I think I'm this says is the world. seller is an absolute legend. That's what I'll say. So anyway, so um, what? I bet, I, what I, I, that's the. Do you know? Not to interrupt, but I just feel like that poor bastard. That's probably the only time. I, like, what the last ten years of Blu-ray been a thing where? Oh God, someone's ordered Cannibal Run. What do we do? Like, just send them the sequel. Just send them the sequel. Get rid of it. And then you happen to buy it. That's classic. Well, anyway, so. If you want to um, get a free copy of the Cannonball Run, I have one copy I will be, will be giving away. And then to enter, it's going to go out on Twitter. So you need to follow us, like the tweet and retweet the tweet. And then I think it's going to run for, let's just say, for like three weeks, because I, I was thinking we can announce the winner on the official recording or at least do the draw on the official recording or whatever for, for the episode and then take it from there. So 
pay attention to our Twitter because there's going to be a giveaway. Now, ha- housekeeping's done. And by the way, shout out to Direct DVD UK, which is an Ama- uh, Amazon seller in the UK, and they're absolutely amazing people. So just wanted to say this because, you know, um, being nice and polite, you know, uh, is, is, a, is a treasure these days. Anyway, now, thank, uh, thanks God, housekeeping's done. Let's move on to the topic of the day, Michael Mann's Miami Vice. their undercover team to these guys like usual you know they're feds russian speakers i was the middleman what 15 percent yeah 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 to set up the meat they grabbed leonetta took leonetta i gave him up man Gave up the feds. Everything. Miami Vice follows a pair of undercover cops, Crockett, uh, played by Colin Farrell, and Tubbs, played by Jamie Foxx, um, a.k.a. Sonny and Rico, by the way. Um, one day, as they are executing a sting operation, they receive a call from a distressed confidential informant and embark on a mission to embed themselves in an international drug smuggling operation. However, as they infiltrate the crime syndicate, they run dangerously close to losing their bearings and end up risking more than they are prepared to in order to achieve their goal. Now, if you're worth your weight in salt, you probably know that Miami Vice was a popular 80s TV show starring Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas, which also was produced by Michael Mann, where he, by, by the way, he made his start as in TV. So you know, I think Jericho Mile as well, for instance. Anyway, apparently the idea of making a feature Miami Vice film came from Jamie Foxx, apparently, who brought it to man during a promotion uh, sort of stint for Ali um, as another project that he was keen on to work with, uh, keen to work with with man after Ali and Collateral. And they just made it happen, though the production had its problems. They lost some shooting time due to, I think, three hurricanes. And I think one of them was Katrina. Um, there was some friction with other producers and crew members because who felt like man was a bit reckless in lo- uh, with location choices, script changes, and da- dangerous working conditions. The budget grew to like $150 million. Jamie Foxx was apparently a massive prima ballerina. He didn't want to like go on commercial flights. He didn't want to go on boats and stuff like this. And then I think as a result, man had to make changes to the script, which is probably one of the main reasons why you have now two cuts of the film. Um, but we'll get there. In the end, the film bombed at the box office, and I think we'll get to why uh, in, a, in a few minutes. But for now, I'll ask you this. The audiences clearly didn't think Miami Vice was worth their time at the time, and, and their money as well. What are your thoughts? Where do you stand on Michael Mann's Miami Vice? So opening impressions, let's just say, Kevin, as you're the sort of the, um, still the, the spring chicken in here, let's, let, let's, let's, see, let's hear what you have to say about Miami Vice. So this is one of those movies that I, I very, very vividly remember going to see in theaters. You know, I was remember being there in like a packed theater opening night and just being swept up in everything I saw. Because I, I mean, at the time, you know, I think the biggest movie at the time was like Pirates of the Caribbean. So like, you know, this, this to go from something like that to something like that was just like like whoa you know that that was kind of like one one of like the earliest times i remember like really really getting into film was like you know, seeing that and then you know go 
going and seeing stuff like Kubrick and stuff like that afterwards and just really growing a bigger, a bigger, deeper love for, for cinema. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to just clarify straight away like I do every other podcast to get a few things out of the door. I'm a massive admirer of Michael Mann and I know Nick is as well. So I'm not too sure about Carson. I'm hoping to God he is because otherwise we might have, an, may have an argument on our hands here. But I know Nick is and I know I am. I've admired Michael Mann ever since I saw Heat decades ago, probably when I was watching The Matrix. I always thought it was overly too long when I watched it when I was younger, but it was a film that really grew on me. So I was always sort of really interested in Michael Mann's filmography. As of late, it's dried up a little bit, but he he always does have these little diamonds in the rough every so often. You know, we we do often have to go back to his filmography and really look at it with a brighter eye. Um, And I think this film gladly is on this podcast to do that. I Am Advice is a really interesting film to talk about because, like you said in your, in your introduction, there's two versions of this film. There's the um, theatrical cut and then there's a the director's cut. There isn't much difference between the two, aside from small bits of editing and the opening sequence, but it's amazing to look at how different the actual final product is. I think Michael Mann as a film... Um, as a, as a filmmaker, really interests me. He's he's has this massive background in in police procedure. He loves looking at like um, investigations and, and 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 cops and robbers. It's always been like a massive aspect of, of his uh, of his day to day life. Excuse me. Right, um, considering that into his filmography as well makes it more emphasized. I have no relationship with the the eighties Miami Vice, the the TV show. I haven't ever watched anything. I know. The, as we say in this podcast quite a lot, I understand that the house that built it. So I'm aware of its, um, you know, John Crockett theme. I'm, I'm aware of Don Johnson. I'm, I'm aware of um, a, a few other characters in there, especially it's like notoriety of uh, like fast cars, speedboats, and, you know, Phil Collins in the air tonight. So I was, I was aware of it. And I remember when this came out, it was a massive big deal. It was two mega stars at the time. One that was, Colin Farrell was trying to be pushed to every single centre of being the next mega star. You are Daredevil, Alexander. He was always being pushed to be something. And he wasn't ever quite trying to like break into the fold. It was always like he was pushing back a bit. Then, of course, you have Jamie Foxx, who comes off an Academy Award win with Ray, not a few years earlier, as well as um, working with Man on, on, on Collateral, which is, oh, I think, my personal favourite of mine as well. So there's a lot riding on this. And the final product is a very interesting one. I've watched both of these and I've watched both of these for a, an essay I did for my university and my MA a few months ago. So I'm sort of quite well versed into it. Out of the two films, I don't like the theatrical cut. On first viewing, I find it very much like Blade Runner. Every time you watch, the first time you watch that film, very like Blade Runner, you don't like it because there's something that's not quite right with Miami Vice. They just, it doesn't sit with you very well. It's very hard to pinpoint at the time. I think that's going to be my answer. Well, I'm going to try and identify specifics later on which you implied but it's so difficult to identify the issue with it and it is with Blade Runner even with even with the final cut of Blade Runner it's so difficult to sort of identify why you don't like it at first but then it grows on you and you look at it and you appreciate for what it is and it becomes a a masterpiece that it is it isn't probably until that essay I did where I really really appreciate the director's cut of Miami Vice and like I said I don't think there's a massive difference between the two but there's something about this film where I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the game straight away because I, I find it very interesting. When I was doing research, I found that Harmony Corinne, who directed Spring Breakers, Miami Vice is his favourite film. I was, like, I was like, well, that's just fucking strange. But when you watch Spring Breakers, 
he talks about and he says when I, when I watched that film when I was when I was very young um, while he was formulating his, his his career being a director that's the only film at the time where he said he could he could feel it he could feel the burnt rubber he could feel the sun cracking the flags he could smell the aftershave he could touch everyone's hair like you can feel the coldness you can feel the warmth of that film like it lives and breathes an appetite and when I watched it um, I watched it on, on my, my my TV screen. Um, I can't get it in 4K, so I had to watch it in HD. And it sort of blew me away how fucking good this is. Like, it's shot superbly. The, the, I'm going to say this now. I'm, I'm going to be hyperbolic because fuck it, I love it. I think single-handedly for a, for a soundtrack in within the 2000s decade to 2010, I think this is probably in the top 10 best soundtracks. Not only are the score is very soundtrack good. Soundtrack or score? Not only is the score very good, but the soundtrack that appropriates it as well is amazing. Like, like mo- the, the use of Moby in here, the use of uh, Lincoln Park and Jay Z. Like, there's so many, there's so many really good bits of material here in the music. Like one of these mornings with with Moby is perfect. Um, I think that the use of sound design in every Michael Mann film, I think this is on par with Heat. It's that good, but there are issues with it, and it is due to the the, the hurricane issue. And like, I, I know that. It's on record that Jamie Foxx has had issues um, on this set because of the prima donna states of his Oscar. That's why he wouldn't fly coach. Uh, he, he wouldn't fly to other... Uh, I think it was meant to shoot in Puerto Rico, the finale. And because he wouldn't, he refused to fly there. And there was issues with gang members and stuff, not letting them um, shoot in certain areas, which is interesting because Michael Mann's very acclaimed to working with like Chicago mobsters on Thief and stuff like that. Like he's, he's very intertwined with working on the other side of the law, very much like he did with Black Cat, which is interesting to talk about considering this film as well. Um, it is, it, it is a really interesting piece to look at. It does have its flaws. And in Michael Mann's filmography, it, it does, it does slightly become a little bit wayward considering what, what he's done in the past, but no doubt this is one of my favorite films of Michael Mann. I have, um, Longish history with Miami Vice, but similar to other movies on this podcast, which is it took me a long time to actually get around to watching it. But I, I've always been aware of the show in some weird way, even though I hadn't seen any of the episodes in the past. But just like many other stories, this one began with video games. Uh, little me didn't have like a PS2 or big consoles or anything, but I did have a PSP, a PlayStation Portable. And I remember going to the store in like 2007 and seeing discounted at two, two pounds, basically, the Miami Vice video game for the PSP. I was like, okay, what's this about? I don't know. I played the game. I loved it at the time. I played it again recently. It's pretty bad. It's, pretty, it's like a box standard third-person shooter. And it has nothing to do with the movie. But that's when I became aware of the existence of this film. And I never saw it because I don't even know, honestly. Up until 2017, when I got Netflix, and I was like, oh, cool, Miami Vice, I can finally watch it. It's there. I downloaded it. I had it on my tablet. When I was on a plane, I was watching it. I wasn't liking it. <laughs> I stopped it halfway through. I was like, I'm going to finish it later. I opened the tablet again, and the movie just like literally ended. It was like the last day to watch the film, and by the time I opened it up again, it was deleted. So I didn't, kept, I didn't finish it, and that was the theatrical cut. And two years ago, I did a small project where I wanted to revisit some action movies and I wanted to finally watch some other ones that I hadn't seen already. And they saw the director's cut of Miami Vice. And I didn't really like it. Um, there was just something missing. 
where I was like, it's confusing. It's constant, like, jargon of technicalities. And it, you're just thrown into the narrative. There's no real build-up. There's no real anything. But it's one of those movies that just lingered in my mind. And I kept going back to like little moments, uh, little needle drops, the climactic shootout. I kept thinking of those. I was like, I, I should give it another shot. And thankfully for this podcast, I did. And to, to prepare myself properly, not only did I rewatch every Michael Mann film up until Miami Vice, I, I also tried to watch the TV show. And I was optimistic because I had the five season box set ready. And then, like, at the third episode, I completely stopped. I was like, no, I'm not enjoying this at all. It was not only a terrible master, but just, it's dated. It's very dated. But this film, this freaking film, I think Michael Mann had a career evolution, not unlike Lars von Trier, which might seem like a weird comparison, but just to make it super short, both directors started off wanting to find some kind of perfection in cinema on like an aesthetic level in the terms of sounds, the narratives. And they both reached in the 90s, the peak of their filmmaking craft, Michael Mann with Heat and Lars von Trier with Europa. And then they were like, well, shit, what are we going to do next? Video, digital. This is like we made fiction. This is real life. This is tangible. Like Jack said, you can feel it. This is even more so, I love Collateral. I think it's probably my favorite of Michael Mann. But this is just peak digital filmmaking. It's raw. It's dirty. There's constant digital noise on every shot whenever it's dark. You can feel it. It's alive. But it's also poetic. There's, there's, there's so much to talk about in this film. I'm just going to stop because I've said enough already. <laughs> I'm happy you guys have a lot to say because I really don't actually have that much strong thoughts on this film, uh, which is not necessarily a negative. Uh, you mentioned the digital like noise. I will say quickly, I did have to text Yakov while I was watching this to make sure my TV wasn't breaking. Um, I, I think the story is fine. The story really didn't like connect with me that much or engage me. This was my first time watching it. Colin Firth, I think, is fantastic. I'll say that. But like the filmmaking itself, 80% of it, I agree. Well, maybe 90% of it is incredible. When the cinematography is inspired, when the directing is inspired, you know, specifically at night with the digital noise and it's on the car that's moving and you have that great cinematography. I mean, it's stunning. My favorite environment in the world, hands down, is a city at night. And this one was so slick and it's so just cool with how it shoots itself, with how it handles itself. But then there will be the times that 10%, maybe 5%, whatever percentage it is, where you can tell that Michael Mann or the cinematographer or whoever is just kind of trying to get the shot and it becomes fucking atrocious to look at. It looks like a college short film at times. Um, but I mean, again, that is only like that 10%. Really, this is a film like I feel really indifferent towards as a great style, great acting. The story itself, it's passable. It was nothing that engaging. But overall, you know, I enjoyed it for what it was. Okie dokie. Well, we have. Uh, I think that's the closest we'll get to the uh, voice of dissent in, <laughs> in, in the in this show because. Um, okay, I'm gonna. Everyone ha seems to have a, have a story to tell, um, and I, I kind of like how Jack you just said. Oh yeah, well, 
I have a long history of this, and and Nick has a history of with Michael Mann, and Kevin has a history of Ma- Michael Mann. Everyone has a history of Michael Mann. I also happen to have a history of Michael Mann, and then um, I just I actually had to really just trying to kind of just rejig my well, my memory and just see how it exactly happened because um, I saw Heat in the cinema. Oh, you bitch! I did. And I wasn't even. That's, you know, that's actually horrible to bring up to someone who I've, no, I, I but, also have. But that's hold horrible. on, don't don't hate because this is a very important story to to me at least. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> it's okay. Don't heckle. Okay, because I, I somehow managed to see Heat in the cinema. I wasn't even twelve, and I wasn't. Uh, nowadays, I wouldn't be allowed in to to a film like this. But thanks to the wonders of living in. Uh, barely post post communist Poland, in a very small town, and that was 1996. And I know this was summer, and the film was released in Poland in April 1996. But to my small town, and we didn't even have a proper cinema. It was like a community sort of like. Is a that a year after released it, Jakub? Hmm? That's a year after it came out everywhere else. Yeah. Uh, I think it That's came. Five. It came out sort of like a January December everywhere else. Okay. Um, but in Poland, it, it, it according to IMDb, the official release date is, I think, 16th of April, 1996, something like that. Okay. So in my hometown, where we didn't have a proper cinema, it was like a sort of like a like a like a I don't know community center where we have like a like theater. People have like dance classes and shit like that. And they and then in the big sort of um, auditorium where you have a stage and then you can you know like you you'd have like I don't know stand up comedy happening sometimes because someone would come over. They had a sheet in the back, they had a massive fucking stain in the middle of it, and that was the cinema, right? And then they would, every weekend there would be a different film. So they didn't have films every day. It would be like, like two showings every week of something, right? So, and Heat was, I think, it must have been June or July because I was off school then, and I saw this, and it was during the day, I think, something like this. Um, and there was literally like two people with me in there, I got, you know, I got the ticket. Like the lady who s- sold these tickets, she didn't even pay attention. The only time she didn't allow me in is when I tried to go and see Showgirls, <laughs> um, and I was also kind of at that age. And then she said, "No, there's tits in there. You can't see it." But yeah, and I went and saw this because I remember on the television there was like this sort of talk about. I, w- I hadn't seen like The Godfather or anything at that time, but there was this talk about you know Robert De Niro and Al Pacino sharing a scene for the first time, and that was the big selling point. Right of the film, I didn't even know who Michael Mann was at the time, and um, um, so I went and saw this. I didn't even uh, expect this to be three hours long. So I'm sitting there, uh, and I'm watching this film, and I think the penny dropped for me during um, before the sort of big firefight when they uh, have a well during the sort of bank heist sequence, but very early on when they um, raid the bank uh, armored car, when I. When I when I s- said to myself in my head, and I do remember this, some something to the effect of, "Can films be like this? Is this like this was like this def- one of these defining moments for me? Like one of these was like Jaws, Star Wars, Jurassic Park. When I saw like films can be like that. Like this was sort of an eye-opening moment for me when I realized that cinema is much more than I thought it had been. Right, and then and then everything else." kind of got informed after that so and then i re and then i learned afterwards that michael mann is a guy you should probably pay attention to 
that Robert De Niro and, and, and Al Pacino are great actors who, who can command the, the scene and just amazing. So, so when Miami Vice was opening and um, so, so that's why kind of Michael Mann is kind of like an important filmmaker to me. This is one of my favorite filmmakers, although I have my blind spots with him. For some reason, I still haven't seen The, uh, the Inside or Ali, but say like, oh, I know, right? But, but Heat and Collateral are like, my, like if, if you ask me to kind of put uh, top 100 films of, of all time for me, the Heat and the Collateral will be there. No mm -hmm. questions asked. And they would be quite high up there. <laughs> um, but so I'm seeing my, I saw Miami Vice the first time and I think now you put you put and I wasn't really impressed when I saw this the first time it had kind to grow, grow on me so over like three or four watches over the last like I want to say 15 years or so it kind of grew to this sort of status of me really loving this film because I absolutely am in love with this film it has its flaws and it's not like a five out of five for me however I am absolutely enamored with this and i see kind of now why because it's we'll get to it in a second but in terms of opening impressions i think it's very it's an oddball gangster film that also has it, it kind of rides the line it's like in a twilight zone between being real and not being real and then you kind of have to get used to it and it's just it's just amazing to look at. It's on, like I love the fact that it's no one explains shit to you. It's like no, no one. There's no no such thing as a person who's there for like exposition reasons to tell you, oh, this is you know like what when Jamie Fox says like okay, you tell the DA this is happening on Tuesday, this is happening on Wednesday when you tell the feds and whatever because they're trying to figure out who the mole is. Like no one explains this to you. They expect you've seen enough gangster films or you have enough like head on your shoulders enough to to, to know what's going on. And I kind of really appreciate this sort of idea. And I, I haven't seen the director's cut. I only saw the sort of, let's just say, the scenes that were added. But even the theatrical cut, I actually do like the fact that it kind of starts like in media res. You just, not even credits. It's just, boom, needle drop. You're in the nightclub. And by the way, the nightclub, to, to me, it's almost like a little carryover from the collateral film. Because <laughs> the nightclub shootout in there is just amazing. And you're you're in there, and then you just try to figure out, oh, that's Colin Farrell. What are they doing? It's it's and this and there's like two hours and twelve minutes of basically that you you just trying to hang on to the shoulders of these two amazing actors are, as they're pretending to be under undercover cops, and then making such a good job that you just forget that the um, that you're watching a film that you just you're you're on a boat with them, you're on you're in a trailer park with them. It, it's it's amazing. So so these are my kind of opening impressions, but. Um, so, so let me just say, carry the conversation forward before we start digging into the, you know, like bits and bobs of director's cut versus, versus theatrical cut. I wanted to kind of ask this question uh, to all of you, um, because I think all of you, all of us, I think are kind of sort of more or less, um, let's just say, uh, aware of Michael Mann's filmography. How does it fit into his filmography being uh, quote unquote a remake and, um, and also a little bit odd and at the same time, a bit of a victim of circumstance, maybe. So what? what or, and so how? How do you feel this? Uh, because Michael Mann came into it following a massive two, well, two massive awards contenders and another gangster film. So there was there was The Insider, there was Collateral, and there was Ali, right? And then all of a sudden he makes a remake of a TV show that he used to produce. How does it fit? What do you guys think? Can, I, then, can I start? Because I, I wanted to actually begin my um. My conversation about it because 
it's interesting how that that is the biggest pull there that someone says well it's it's man revisiting a, an existing property but this is not out of the ordinary for michael matt because with heat he re-envisioned re a, a, a TV pilot from LA Takedown. Yep. Now, I've seen LA Takedown, it's and the shit. first 25 minutes for, for the, uh, the opening of that film is Heat. It's a direct remake. There's a few different bits at the ending. It's far more cinematic. Heat at uh, the ending is far more them thematic as well, and it plays more morality and, and, and good versus bad. But the, the, the foundation of LA Takedown is there. Now... With Miami Vice, that is, what, six or seven seasons of an evolution of, of, of an era as, of a society as well as of, of two uh, performances. So not only do you have the society reflects it with politics, but you also have the fashion. It's ever-revolving. You have so much to pick out there. You, 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 if you're a creator of, of um, popular culture, then it's difficult to then go into something else and try to do it again. Now, it's interesting because Miami Vice comes out at a really strange time as well, like, because it, you know, we talk about the evolution of like digital filmmaking. It started with Ali. There's a scene on the rooftops. Um, I believe it's when um, Ali's training and um, my, uh, Malcolm X's death is just announced, and he's he's skipping rope on the. I think I think that's how the film opens, and uh, that shot with the digital camera. That's 2001. So, the insider really, it's a strange one because it it doesn't really have it. the inside of anything feels like the one that's out there because it's a digital evolution more, more so than a, than a narrative one. But I think Miami Vice comes out at a really strange time culturally because you've got, you've got the, the war on in America. You've also got 2006. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult time um, polit politically anyway. The, the civil unrest, this hurricane. Um, you have two performances in, in the film. Now, I'm not, actually, I won't, I won't go into that because I want to go into that later, but your, your question is, I think this gets a lot more flack of being a sort of a Michael Mann falling on his sword and doing something he, he'd done before. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that because we, we constantly look at remakes and we look at something like, I don't know, let's say Conan, for example. Conan came out in, in the 80s. It's prime for a remake, but the problem with Conan is it's so substantiated in popular law because of the actor who was behind it, which is, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and you have James Earl Jones, you've got two popular culture icons. But nevertheless, that film is prime for being remade because it, it has a cultural status, but also you, you, with, with the technology we have now, with the performances we have now, you would have thought that would, it would have been uh, very easy to, to, to substantiate for an audience. And if you look at Conan, the remake with um, Jason Momoa, I think it's got a lot of interesting similarities with here because audiences, we would have thought would have been clamouring up for it, but really sort of just push it to one side of, of not really accepting it, which I feel is slightly harsh. I know both films have their, have their audiences, but... It's interesting. You could look at Scarface. It's been remade three times. I mean, I just I find it really strange how this film gets this sort of mm, harsh recognition of oh, it's a, it's a remake. It's Michael Mann being quite you know lethargic. I think Diego's right. I think Michael Mann hit his peak in 1995. But even if you hit your peak, and you're never going to get that because that's a cultural status icon itself. You have Al Pacino, you have Robert De Niro, and you have Michael Mann working on a film. You have a trifecta. It's a modern day. It's a it's a it's a modern day epic in its time. It was the first time those actors were on screen together. It's very difficult to to build upon that momentum. So he tried to do it again. He has the technology with him, which is uh, which is the the video the HD cameras. You bring two, as as I mentioned in my opening statement, two beginning to be icons of cinema. You would have hoped 
and you have a predisposed narrative that he knows that he worked on that he produced and he, he wrote a few episodes for now i think the problem comes down with the performances not regardless of anything else i think this film for its cinematic uh, filmmaking ability is probably second to none at the time you know this comes a year after revenge of the sith we put that into perspective and you look at the amount of cgi the, the amount of issues in that film but the the absolute mega books of what it what it came to make and you look at this i mean it's one year before the third spider-man film it, it doesn't feel like it's trapped in that era it feels like it could have been released yesterday for me the only thing that, that ultimately um ages this is unfortunately the uh, the cultural icon that iconography that it has it's ferraris it's fords it's clothing it's Armani, it's 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 Hugo Boss. That's the issue with the film. And it's the same thing that happened with Mary Vice. That, that's a, unfortunately, that's something you've just got to build upon. You, you can't really have a timeless classic when you, your film is trying to be a dent in popular culture. But again, I think the film is unfortunately, it has all the right pieces together and it has the, it has the ingredients, but something just doesn't gel with it. There's, there's a, I think the main issue of this film, not to, to go onto a tangent here, but if I can't find that the two performances are meant to be friends, have no charisma or no chemistry, and I'm meant to care about them in this world, it's going to be a very tough task for, what, 132 minutes, 142 minutes. I think that's the biggest problem this film has, because everything else for me, I never really see it as a remake. It's its own entity. I don't think it's got anything mostly to do with, with the original TV show. I mean, Michael Mann is on record. He refused to put in the air tonight in this film by Phil Collins. Had it be redone, he refused to put um, Crockett's theme in this because he didn't want anything to do with the original. He refused cameos on this because he didn't want anything to do with it. I, I feel it's very harsh to sort of negate this as like, well, it's just a, it's just a, a remake of an '80s show. I think it's got a lot more than that. It's just unfortunate it came out an era where people weren't particularly impressed by it, which is quite heartbreaking. But considering Michael Mann's filmography with like Public Enemies and Black Cat. It seems that he releases these films in the wrong era for them to be appreciated because if Public Enemies came out in the 90s in Heat, I think Public Enemies would be a masterpiece in its own right. It's a very good film, but it would be far greater with the digitalization of it, which it has there. Um, but like Black Cat, we're just not appreciating the time that it's in. And unfortunately, as time progresses, it gets even worse about the appreciation because that technology that's in that film, the narrative, it's just, it's done, you know? Look at Sicario. I don't think Sicario is too different from Miami Vice in, in narrative form. Different cinematically and probably different thematically, but narrative form, it's a very similar type of film, but people were there for Sicario nine years after the fact. It's just, you know, the unfortunate beast when you release something and people are not quite ready for it. And that's ultimately where I come down on the film. I think everything's here aside from the problems I've got with it, which I, I suppose we'll go into later, but it's just a film that was released at the wrong time for the wrong audience. But I think having this discussion, we, we might get it back on board. I weirdly completely yeah. disagree with what you just said. Like, I think, like, <laughs> I think Sicario, I think the thing about Sicario that stands out so much is like over this film is the thematic depth and the actual interesting narrative and the actual depth found with it that Miami Vice genuinely lacks. I think you look at this and it came out, I wouldn't say it came out too early. I mean, I think the fact that it has so many classic cars and so many classic, you know, the slickness of this and what it's going for, I think is a product of its time. And if you put it outside mm -hmm. of its element, I think it would die an even quicker death. Oh, I think wow. right now, 
it, you can look back and I, cause I'm also, you know, watching the fast and furious films for the first time. And those early ones, like there's a sense of nostalgia to like, Oh, these cars are like this old way of life. And I think you do get some of that with Miami vice, but I think that this came out at the perfect time. I think it just took, it didn't have the thematic depth to find like, film like I, I don't know film film twitter did not exist but like film critics at the time i don't think appreciate it because it didn't have that depth and that narrative i think audiences at the time didn't like it because it is too artistic and it's too michael mann you know being michael mann not necessarily you know a, i think a director of the people always so like mm-hmm. i think it its identity is caught up between those two ideas in the worst of ways but i think the time it came out in with what the film is trying to be gave it the best chance that it could just on that note, have you seen Collateral, Castle? Because I'd like yes. to get your opinion on this. In my opinion, it's so strange because Collateral is two years before Miami Vice. Yes. But I think Miami Vice feels like it's aged maybe two years before Collateral. It's it so also feels like it came out. It, if you were just looking at the two films without the knowledge of when they came out, when it feels like Miami Vice would be the first film in the filmography. Yes. It feels yeah, like Collateral builds off of what he accomplishes in Miami Vice, which is so strange when it, you think about Michael Mann. It is. A, it, is it is. I will admit, it's a very strange film for Michael Mann to want to do, because mm. you talk about this. He has this Ferrari uh, biopic that he's. He wants Christian Bay on it. He wants Hugh Jackman. He wants Numi Rapace on it at one time. It's gone through the motions, and you you think of the films that came after this. It's just. I don't. I, I would. I wouldn't understand the incentive, but perhaps if you built the house and it, it came away from you, and you were so successful to go back. I mean, we, we've, it's weird because we haven't deja vu. I feel we've had this conversation before on one of the podcasts. Alien why, Three, I believe. Yeah, yeah, David Fincher. Why would you go back? Yep. And I feel like I'm not, I don't want to bring that conversation up again because I feel like we put that to bed. But it is a really interesting conversation to have because unlike Fincher, man did go back. We didn't really, go back te- technically. Um, well, because it's not, not, it's, you can argue that it's not a remake. It's just an excuse to make to make a film in the spirit of something that people. I wouldn't, didn't say, I wouldn't use the, the term excuse. I don't think Michael Mann. Uh, I, no, I don't no, think he no, would but, make an excuse to make. No, but at, at, in two thousand six, people were already moving on from like the sort of the uh, hard R genre films of the eighties and early nineties. Like this was kind of like a throwback to that time. Yeah, I mean, two, two years. As opposed, you get, to, uh, as opposed to a remake, right? So yeah, it's basically two... just using known property to just have fun with it because I think Jamie, Jamie Foxx wanted to be Tubbs. I think that was the main reason for to make this film. I think Kevin wanted to say something, but, you know, so I... No, well, just before, I don't think that's true. I think the, the reason why this film was made is because Don Johnson told uh, Michael Mann that if anyone would, was going to play it, it needs to be um, Colin Farrell. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, that may have... Which is interesting because out of the two, I think Jamie Foxx is probably the better actor. But my um, but Colin Farrell has it. Like, Visually, we'll get there. Yes, has it. Don't start because he does. Like, but it's just so strange. Go on, Kevin. Sorry. No, no, that's all good. Um, I was gonna say though. I mean, I think Michael Mann is just like one of those filmmakers though that is just just constantly always doing stuff that it doesn't matter what it is. It's just always. Uh, ahead of its time in a sense i mean you you look at something like thief you know it took what like almost 40 years for that to really start to gain some 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 appreciation or so and you you, you look at that 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 motherfucker looks modern and oh, that's that and that came out in the like the in the in the, in the uh, 80s so you know he's always kind of been though like one step ahead it just took, you know, everyone else just getting is catching up to whatever the fuck he's trying to do. I mean, I know um, 
uh, Nicholas had said he tried he tried to watch um, the uh, Matt Mahibai series, and you know I watched it years ago, maybe when I was when I just out of high school, and there's elements of it that is interesting, you know. The editing, use of music, you know, all the style to it and everything, even though know, seeing, seeing you no, know, those uh, actors who end up being big, like there's an episode with, with Bruce Willis, I think, and, and Steve, and Steve, uh, uh, Steve Buscemi and stuff. But, you know, that's one of those things too, that is just always ahead of the game, just takes time for everyone else to catch up to him. You know, I watched uh, Collateral recently and it just, no, all, all those shots of the car just driving to the city, uh, all that stuff just kept this heavily reminding me of something like Good Time. Just like in the style of it and the way it all you know plays out visually. I mean, if I, if I would add to this one thing, when you mentioned Thief, Thief came out, Nicolo, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're, you're the dates guy, 1981. 80. Mm-hmm. 80? Are you sure? Or 81? I'll check. It's 81. I think it's 81, but point is... Shit. He's, <laughs> 81, yeah. Yeah, but mm-hmm. he, see, point is, like, you're, you're saying, yeah. you're saying, like, I think this is a spot-on observation that he's always been ahead of the game. Uh, he was always ahead of the pack and he was always kind of like, always misunderstood in a way and kind of just, like, like people, uh, unless they're hardcore cinephiles and maybe nowadays it's a bit different, but before, Michael Mann wasn't sort of considered at the same level as, say, like Coppola or Sidney Lumet or... Uh, or Scorsese, right? He was always kind of just like, oh yeah, there's this guy. Like, oh, he would be like a few notches below Tony Scott almost. Uh, but when you think about Thief, is 1981, so this is a film made by a by a guy, um, a bunch of people who were inspired by the films of the 70s, and they almost single-handedly invented the 80s aesthetic. Like, if you think about this, and then. Later on, then you'll see he's transitioning into the 90s um, and then he's almost kind of reinventing himself again and then just becoming a sort of a quiet trendsetter. Like no one really references him overtly, but he's always influencing other filmmakers. And then he comes up with Collateral and all of a sudden digital revolution starts making sense. And then and then he comes out with Black Hat. And then, well, now, now I don't, I don't know if he's, if, if his relevance is, continues to be on the same level that he, that they used to be, but I think he, he, he deserves a little bit of credit for this. Can I break that down? Because I found that really interesting. Because when you look at it in the eighties, the seventies and the eighties, it was always, always about pushing the exploitation. Like you would push the rating as broad as, yes. you, as far as you could. The nineties was always about actor power. If you had the Bruce Willis, you had the Tom Hanks, you had. Yeah, yeah, you had the Al Pacino, the Robert Nero. You had the, that's the Scorsese level of success of bringing these performers on, the Sharon Stones. You, you, that's the whole 90s uh, game. And mm-hmm. the early 2000s was all digitalization, which he was on board with. The decade after that, we've just finished, is the comic book genre. But he didn't, con- ca- didn't catch that train, did he? But, but the thing is, that's the problem with these filmmakers. If you look at that era, that's why Coppola ends. That's why Scorsese filmography changes. Well, in in all fairness, they're, they're, they're in their 70s and 80s, yes, yeah, some of them. It's just the trend that they came on. It was the bounce, wasn't it? It was yeah. the one where it was like, look, I, well, Michael Mann produced Hancock, so maybe... He did. So so sort of his sort of torchbearer would be like Pete Berg is kind of like the continuator of, of, yeah, of well, Michael Mann. Yeah, I can see that. Um, yeah, yeah. I like but, Pete Berg. I think he's an interesting, he, really interesting director. Yeah, so not he, the, he, the new one with uh, Matt Wahlberg's not very good, but... Uh, yeah, which, well, mile twenty-two. 
and it has its moments. Mile, um, not mile twenty-two. That's Spencer Confidential. Oh, Spencer, oh right, oh, yes, God. of course. But yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I, but to me, this is also like a throwback to that kind of cinema, like this sort of TV pilots from early nineties. So you can see yeah. that it has its appeal and it oh, has shit. its audience. To be honest. Uh, well, it's not the best, <laughs> but what I what I will say is, um, oh, I almost forgot what I wanted to say. Um, no, but say like people like Denny Villeneuve, I'd say they would be inspired by people like Mann and Ridley Scott. Like Ridley Scott also is kind of one of those people who kind of just carries a, a lot of clout. Uh, uh, very like similar the, director, yes. Yeah, very similar. and they're sort of like filmmakers, filmmakers, like as in like they won't have clout with cinephiles. They will have clout with uh, people who make movies. And then so like it's interesting that you men mentioned Sicario. I, I would say like, yes, thematically. Miami Vice doesn't have the same sort of hook that, say, Sicario has, because Sicario is kind of like the silence of the lambs, the lambs in that there's a woman in a man's world. So there's thematically a lot more to peel off of the film. Miami Vice is almost like a like a genre sort of exploitation sort of situation where it's just it's about the visceral experience as opposed to every, anything else. So if you if you're looking for like a political statement in a film, like you're gonna be fucking disappointed. Right. So <laughs> you, yeah. you, you you say that in Michael Mann's films. Yeah, so like no, like in specifically in, in Miami Vice. Like you, you, films. No, no, in specifically in Miami Vice, I wouldn't say like if you if you're going for for like a political statement or for like a thematic sort of exploration of something a little bit more deep on like humanity or whatever. Like this is not, I mean, you might find some there, but I don't think it's- No, I'd agree with you. I, thought, I don't I, think yeah, it's no, the mission of the it. film, right? Specifically in this one, yeah, which is interesting considering it, it touches on like, you know, drug running, DEA issues yeah. surrounding that, ice and it, you know, with the, with the Cuba sequences as well. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I just especially, think that- Especially like the era too, it's like, like mm -hmm. 2006 war, war on terror and stuff you know you'd think you know go go a lot harder on it instead of just kind of kind of surface level action film even though everything else about the film is just really under the surface which is kind of how how man works mm -hmm. i just think that it's 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 so interesting to look at this film because i, I think when you talk about Ridley Scott, Ridley Scott, as as much as I genuinely adore my life, he's another filmmaker I genuinely adore, loads of passion. He is, he can be a journeyman. He can make one for the studio and one for himself. Michael Mann cannot make a film for the studio. It's not in his body. Well, he can't do it. Isn't, like, he does have his, like, The Insider was kind of like a... No, The Insider is his, yeah. Well, I, 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 I think mean, that's I haven't seen it, but the, but the, the appeal well, it got was kind of like a... Like, hmm? <laughs> Where's your frame of reference? Uh, no, no, it's in terms of how it was received. Like this was kind of like it had serious awards pull, right? And then he makes genre films that do not have that pull, right? And then now would, he's would making, you, would... and now he's making a Ferrari film. Would I, I would expect this would have? It'll never um, come out. He'll never, he can't. He'll wait, never is, I mean, the last thing I heard he was making was that that HBO show. Yeah, Tokyo okay. Vice. Tokyo. Tokyo. Yeah, it's another film. It's another show that's going to get a difficult ride because it's got Ansel Ego in it. So it's going to have a very difficult ride when it comes out. I know the BBC and HBO have acquired a deal for it, so it's going to it's going to be shown. But again, it's just him picking the times, and the times not being very reflective of him. You know, Ansel Ego at the moment. You know, it's not particularly great to have him on board. Not a very bankable name at the minute, no, isn't he? <laughs> no, I mean, I'll I'll keep that to a to, to a minimum because I think Spielberg's got a lot to fucking answer for. Um, but I'll leave that for another day. I mean, but it's, it's also well, for, it's also Disney. They do own Fox now. <laughs> Please let's not go there. <laughs> I just I just think of Michael Mann. It, it, you, he's very much like a like a, a wild beast. If you let him let him roam, 
he'll he'll do his job. He'll he'll, he'll keep within his in his environment. But sometimes that that beast will it'll, it'll, with inadvertently or inadvertently it'll wander out its closure and it'll, it'll go into different heights and stuff like that. And I think Michael Mann often does try and remain within his closure, but also want to express himself and touch on different subject matter. I don't think Michael Mann's got any business making a fucking film about coders and hackers. But I think Black Cat more so has connective tissue to this film because if you look at the main lead, a Black Cat, which is Chris Hemsworth's character. Again, Chris Hemsworth, this is a few years after Thor, um, but still not a bankable star. I know he was in the Cabin, uh, uh, Cabin in the Woods thing with uh, Drew Goddard and uh, the man who yeah, not the name, yeah, Josh Whedon. Um, uh, what's his face? He was in Perfect um, Getaway as well. Oh, uh, was it uh, Rush? Uh, oh, Rush, yes. Yeah, Ron Howard's yeah. Rush. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is the film that probably, which is strange with Ron Howard, but that again, that's Ron Howard in Cabin in the Woods. It comes at a time where it's like he's he's trying to formulate with with an actor. He's trying to build off on, hoping the best that it'll 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 give the film a bit more credit than it deserves. But also, I think when you look at that film, he's trying to make slight amends with Miami Vice when he looks at that film because essentially it feels like it's a an evolutionary follow up to Miami Vice. It has a very similar aesthetic, which you could argue that that's what Man proposes now. But if you look at Public Enemies, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't well, sort of. Public Enemies is weird because it's a period piece at the same time. So it's kind of like he's trying to play, like, write the line between this being a period piece and also having this sort of digital look, right? So that's maybe why. Miami Vice. Uh, no, no, Public Enemies. Yeah, so I mean, Public I've, Enemies is kind of aesthetically a bit weird. Yeah, I mean, I've expressed my thoughts anyway. I don't like when period pieces are shot with digital cameras. Like I, I said about the Conjuring, it doesn't work for me. But, Th- that, no, but I think Man's doing it for a purpose, though. Yeah, no, man's doing it for a cinematic storytelling. I, I think when you look at man, when you put Michael Mann and Scorsese together, right, Scorsese will, will shoot a film with narrative focus, whereas man's first priority is filmmaking focus, sound design. It's all about quality of filmmaking skill. So when you look at Miami Vice and you look at Public Enemies, Public Enemies is the one that will stand out because he's trying to maintain a, a, a 21st evolutionary cinematic, well, filmmaking ability on a period piece set in the, in the tw- 1920s those two don't really intertwine very well when you're trying to sort of make it as as interesting as possible because ultimately when johnny depp is is don john dillinger is walking for, uh, through a field and and the the, the 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 sun is setting and michael mann's following him handheld camera to me i, I can see through that because it's not it, that that form to me it doesn't match the era, but that's that's a, a personal issue I have with it. I find it very difficult to sort of uh, gel with that. So when when you're seeing Baby First Nelson shooting a Tommy gun on the side of a, of a Ford T1 and it's pitch black, but I can see everything. I just think it it just loses my grasp a little bit. Not I, I really like Public Enemies. I've got I've got a personal issue about film regardless, but. The, the Miami Vice, you could probably argue, is very similar. There's there's so much handheld, and especially in that final shootout at the dock. There's a lot of handheld slow motion. Justin Through gets shot in the, like one of the most strangest ways that you often forget he's in that film, and then mm-hmm. he's like he just pops up and he he's like it slows down and then it, it, it speeds up. It's almost like trying to well, like like you said, trying hyper stylizing this, this. Yeah, this sort yeah, hyper stylizing, but a that, little bit. Yeah, but we look at not a few years later with the Bourne film, Bourne Ultimate, which is a year later. That that hyper stylized editing is 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 the norm. I mean, 
who would have thought that Jason Bourne would have changed the editing, the, the cultural editing but, cinematic. But, but Greengrass does the opposite, Bourne. doesn't he? Greengrass doesn't really slow down and doesn't go for like the moody um, sort of like moments you know, of, of suspended animation. He go like, he cuts. Is just, he cuts. Like, constant. It's just really fast, pretty much. I mean, like you ever hear him talk about how like his editing style is always just always on the move. He has fluidity, but he also allows the film to breathe, um, which is interesting because we spoke about Saw a week ago, and we I, I spoke about James Wan with the Conjuring films. And again, I think James Wan has a lot to thank Michael Mann for because when you look at the Conjuring, specifically the second one, have you, what have we spoken about Thor? Saw. So, I saw. Jesus. Oh, okay. My accent. Uh, no, it's maybe my, my headphones are <laughs> a little bit too quiet. Sorry. <laughs> well, thanks anyway, go on. <laughs> we spoke about Saw the other day, and we look. At, I look at James Mann, and I look at it aesthetically how he creates cinema. Yeah. Anyway, and you look at Michael Mann. Michael Mann allows the camera to breathe. He likes the fluidity, so the camera will move. It will move constantly at hip height or at shoulder at length. The camera really isn't sort of like go anywhere else. He always likes in the mood. And you look at the Conjuring films and James Wan really allows that camera to breathe. So you, you fill the room when, when, when you go into like the haunted room and you know that the fucking there's a knock in the, in the wardrobe. There's no edit there. James Wan allows that film to breathe. So you fill the tension. The room just soaks it up and then he squeezes it. Bang, you get you, you, you scare. That's how James Wan has like reappropriated that technique in the horror space. And I think that's fucking genius. But Michael Mann, is definitely the sort of the single-handed proponent of building that in the first place. When you look at Miami Vice, look at that shootout sequence, like I said, um, and, and also maybe at the 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 sequence at this uh, where it's where they go to like the uh, I don't know what the correct term is here. I'm going to be very careful. Hillbilly. Uh, what? The trailer park. park. Oh, the uh, trailer park. park. Yes. Yeah. I use redneck. To, like they, when they go to save Trudy. That's the way. Is it correct? Supremacists. Redneck, redneck. So I think redneck, redneck is fine. Yeah, I can call what they want. Fucking well, 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 you can call them. I think they were called white supremacists. They are. Yeah. 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 You could just, just call them Nazis and call it a day. No, no, but yeah, in the film, but, they were like, that's a white supremacy. Like, they're, they're the Aryan yeah, yeah. Brotherhood gang, yeah, so right? The, the, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. When you look at that sequence and you feel you feel the build up and you see him go to the door underneath the shotgun as well with the pizza, you look at that scene like he doesn't give you the end, like, he doesn't like when, when he soaks up all this tension, he doesn't release it in a bang, which is very no. difficult to, for an audience because you're expecting that. So it's almost like a like a, a convention of sorts. I think more so subconsciously and consciously. But when it's when it's not released, it feels slightly underwhelming. And I think that's the massive problem with this, with its joint with its action beats as well. So mm. every action beat you get, you're expecting a really big payoff because he had that, collateral had that. This film doesn't have that big payoff. It's all small, minimalistic moments. And you only really get that final piece um, with the explosion at the end. But even then, it doesn't feel... You know, it's, not even the, it's not even the end. Yeah, we have another... As also, yes. as well, that's, that's, that's not the original version as well. That, 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 that's meant to happen. But mm-hmm. that's not meant to happen, actually. That whole white supremacy is not meant to happen. It's, um, it, they're meant to go to Puerto Rico. But because of Jamie Foxx was refusing to fly, they had to reshoot it, which I believe is... Uh, is it well, in the director's cut, or is it... Because I haven't seen the director's cut. Is this no, changed? No, no, the theatrical no, director's cut, right? the exact same ending. The problem is that that's not the, the, um, the intended 
set piece, mm-hmm. okay, which okay. feels slightly underwhelming when you think they're going here, there and everywhere. I, I suppose on paper you'd have thought, actually, it feels more um, cyclical coming back and set in Miami when the film ultimately starts. So we don't want to be jet- jetting it off here and everywhere. Well, it's called Miami Vice. <laughs> exactly. I, th- I, think, I think on hindsight, it's a better decision. But with that, the set piece is not as vulgar and perhaps as stomach churning as it probably could be or should be. I don't know. I think it's it's you know, a very impactful action scene, but but all of them, which are very few and far between, to be honest, I can easily see someone going into this expecting a full-on action film and being incredibly disappointed. But but I think that's a testament to what Man was trying to do. And like you said, Jack earlier, the fact that he wanted to avoid almost any connection to the actual TV show—that's I don't want to say revolutionizing, but it's like literally any other movie mm-hmm. based on a TV show. Like if you think of the A-Team, even things oh, like God, Alvin God. and the Chipmunks or anything, Oof. I think of this. I think, okay, first movie, set up the team, set up the squad, set up the characters, they get together, they band together, which is something that works in introducing the audience to them for futures for like sequels and whatnot. But I've never found particularly rewarding on subsequent viewings because you just want to like stay with the characters mm-hmm. and if so much of it is spent on like p- putting them together that's that, that's the pilot episode of Miami Vice um, in the 80s and I think th- just the boldness of making a movie based on a property that's beloved but not in a way that would make people flock to the theater as it happened and I think it just like Jakub said start, starting media's res where you, you don't know what you're what's happening honestly you really don't and you're never fully explained what's going on and yet you get it i think there's something i think it's a testament to the skills of filmmaking of knowing what you wanted to do on just an inherent level you get it you don't have to be able to follow it it's very much a mood piece which is the incredible thing for me because you're you're following it and I do believe the main problem, even though the director's cut does have the extra opening of the two together race thing, <laughs> like, like for me, the only reason why I don't love this film is the relationship between the two characters, which is non-existent. Agreed. Like it's Agreed. it's supposed, but even then, like the weird thing is, Miami Vice the show is a buddy cop TV show, but the Miami Vice movie doesn't even try to be a buddy cop movie. So I don't know if I can even criticize it that much for that because for what it's trying to do it works like taking these two characters separately it always for me it always works when they're interacting with the their love interests and doing their own things and when they're together it just i i think that's literally the only weak point for me narratively just off that i have a theory here i think you call call me crackpot or what but it would seem to me that off the off the success of Universal with Rare, this may be a contract film for Jamie Fox, and therefore there's not much passion in here because out the two of them. But Hugh apparently brought it to man, didn't he? No, I see. I, I, I well, may, maybe maybe that's law. But I, I mean, I find, this may be it may be both actually. I mean, out, to, out of two of them, Jacob. But to me, it's interesting because they both have very similar um, uh, uh, character development sequences. That they they have two. Uh, they, they're one, one has a lover that we explore very, very sort of uh, tentatively, which is the Jamie Foxx and Naomi Harris, who's superb in this film. And then you have um, Colin Farrell, and I can't, I will not butcher her name because she's Gong awesome. Lee. 
Gong Li. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I just yeah. don't want to butcher her name. At all. She's superb in this film. And they both have very similar uh, narrative forms where, the, where they two go. But the thing is, is that we get to see the, the build-up of um, Gong Li and Colin Farrell. We get to understand that why that relationship is never going to work. But there's a passion there. As much as I think that though that the sequence when they're in Cuba is like slightly flat, like they're meant to be on like a, a lover's retreat. And you think like, do you guys even like, like each other? But in the same breath, when I look at Naomi Harris and Jamie Foxx, I just don't see them. I, they have a very different relationship because obviously that's predisposed at them to like, are in love. They're a couple, but you don't explore that. But ultimately the film goes around the route of making that, uh, relationship, the centre of a very major set piece that sort of then provokes thematic and narrative layers of the film in its final act. But you don't get to see that build-up, so ultimately you don't really care. It's only really with a strong sort of charismatic performance of Naomi Harris that makes that relationship worse. Therefore, I don't think Jamie Foxx brings enough to the table to make that work. But again, you could argue that's a narrative screenplay issue. But both both actors, it's as you mentioned, Jacob, Sorry, uh, Nick. They just don't gel whatsoever, and it feels like, even like I said, when they're on the on the, the car park rooftop, or even I think that's the reason why Michael Mann has to uh, the director's cut have a speedboat sequence. It has to showcase to the audience that these two are, are like friends off duty, and then you get to that sequence in the nightclub, and the film where it starts, so they just don't seem to gel. There's not there's no sequences where they they chat to each other. There's no like gel. There's no chemistry whatsoever, and it, is, it does undermine the film throughout. Because if you're meant to care about the buddy cop scenario, if it doesn't exist, how, how, am, how am I meant to like give any sort of intrigue or excitement of the sequences that then prevail at the end? I think it's just it's a shit house, you know. It's a shit sandwich. I think whatever he does here, it's just not going to work. And again, you can argue whose fault that is at the end of the day, but the problem is it didn't work, and that's a massive failure of this film. It's like. It's difficult to assess what it's like having like a, a, a rom com and you have two leads that don't match. Like within that genre, it can work because it's the unlikely, you know, bubbling idiot and the and the, and the, the lovely woman who fall in love. With this type of genre, if you don't have that camaraderie, I think it falls flat almost immediately. And it, I mean, I don't think, not, not sorry, I don't, I don't want to speak them, but it's just when you look at Heat and you look at the two. They're opposing figures who have the same idealistic intent about their jobs. They won't both stop until they get the job done. And ultimately, it's, it's that two forces are going to verge and one's going one's gonna to drop and the other one's not. With this, you have two merging forces that are meant to be on the same path that have very much the very similar narrative uh, forward um, structure as two romantic legends, as I've just mentioned. But it just doesn't go anywhere. Like you, you don't feel any opposing figures. Like there's, there's a, a bit in the film where there's like pushback on what Colin Farrell wants to do and Jamie Fox, and in the end, there's sort of like this idea of well, perhaps this is the end of their relationship. We don't know. But to me, it just doesn't go anywhere. I just feel like there's no momentum whatsoever between that relationship. I mean, if I may, kind of quickly add something to this, because I'm, um, I actually, I don't want to say I disagree with that. The fact that they, there's no chemistry be- between them, I think this is a fault of the. Um, expectations placed upon the film because you you kind of inherently you look at this film called Miami Vice starring Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx and they're both together on the poster you expect a body cop film and it's not a body body cop film I think I even think that you know 
while the sort of the director's got opening on the boat saying like as you say well it kind of just introduces some chemistry between them that they're friends uh, of work but that's the only time this happens so it's kind of like check done doesn't really work because you can you can you, hundred minutes in you'll forget all about it i have a thing that this is at least to me their relationship is completely professional they're not friends they're just on the job together and that's that's all this is and then it kind of also translates like it almost looks to me like michael mann was kind of like he, he knows how these things work as in like he can embed himself professionally in these things and then kind of try to tease out this sort of what being an undercover police officer actually looks like as in what kind of a life do you have and you don't really have a life so the only reason jamie fox's character uh, tubbs has a partner is because they work together like Trudy is 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 a police officer together with them, so they're like doctors almost. Like if, unless they find another doctor, they'll never marry anybody else because they don't have time. Like they, you know, like they can't, the guys are like deep undercover for six months at a time. How are you supposed to have a family, right? So, to me, this kind of almost works as on on a level that they're professionals. They don't have sort of chemistry like Riggs and Murtaugh in um, in Lethal Weapon, for instance. Like they don't have the banter, they don't have the sort of chemistry, they don't have the sort of back and forth. Um, all they all they after is there's a job, we need to do this A, B, C, and D. We need to, and then and at the end there's a cartel that we need to uh, uh, you know get to the bottom of, and there also there's a mold that we need to kind of just flush out at some point. That they don't care about anything else, and even the relationship. You could you could say it's kind of subverted at the end because the relationship that Colin Farrell has with uh, Gong Li's character is also professional, as in he's doing this to get information out of her or embed himself on deeper undercover. Like the, the relationship is professional in in his regard, and he and he fails at this because he's also human. So I think in this regard, I would say it's almost a. Uh, like I think this is this is a genius of Michael Mann that people kind of just failed to see, as in that this is. They, they were expecting, a, 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 you know, in a normal sort of cops and robbers film, this would be action, there will be booming score, like when they were on speedboats, there will be music, there will be fast cutting. And no, this is, as you, like, Nicole, like, I have this in my notes as well, but you just made it for me. This is a mood piece, right? And this is also kind of like when, um, when Jack, you mentioned Blade Runner, that people expect one thing and they get something else in return. So to me, this is almost like, uh, if you imagine the Cops and Robber f Robbers films was a song and then a post-rock band made a cover of it. It's like, it, it's kind of like this. It, you, you don't expect this to be a rock song. This is going to be something else. There's going to be this massive delays and reverbs and whatever. And then this is kind of like this kind of film. It doesn't have a pacing that a, like, a, like a police procedural would have. It doesn't have a pacing like, like Collateral does or, um, or uh, I don't know, just looking for an example. Or even like what Heat does. Heat is a three hour long film, but it has a pacing. It kind of just, it goes, it goes and doesn't stop. But this thing has moments where there's five minutes at a time when they're just on a boat and they're just going somewhere. Or they'll be just walking around the house. Nothing happens. Like this is something like that. So yeah, I, I actually have a thing that this is like what Jack's sort of, one of the initial comments, I think from an hour ago now, where this is in compared compared when you compare this to Blade Runner, uh, this is I think this is spot on, like this is pretty much and also yeah I, I think it's also probably why this failed at the box office because people went to see Blade Runner expecting a science fiction film and they got this 
weird meditation on humanity that people didn't really quite like well, no, no one explains shit to you and then same similarly in 2006 when you have like massive blockbusters like Pirates of the Caribbean kind of just roaming through the theaters and then there's um massive war going on this is a piece of escapism that people were supposed to like oh yeah let's go and watch something like i don't know 2013 would be like two guns or whatever and it's like this shit what is this like nothing happens in here and people were like whoa but i think this has a purpose well i have more things i wanted to say but i'm I'm gonna stop there because you know like i don't want to go for like 15 minutes at a time and but yeah that's one point i wanted to make not because i know class wants to talk about really quick here not not because i know you've just praised me i'm gonna just take that in for a second but not to just throw it back in your face but i think that's so interesting you say about the, the buddy cop like when just to clarify i don't want them to make fart jokes and like shoot people and laugh or make quips i want camaraderie i want them to have passion for each other in that in that in that job i understand that when you say about the the two doctors and i, I think as a as a thematic that might work for michael mann but on a on a, on a filmmaking level for an audience that doesn't click from for a major audience and that's a I, massive yeah. issue i think this film has so, I, when, I think when you, so yeah. it doesn't it doesn't it's not entertaining let's just say yes no I, I, and i right. would completely agree with you i think when you look at it in the context of the film i think you're bang on there but when you look at it on, a, on an audience level a, a reception a, re, a reception level it doesn't work like when you look at the matter the heat and I, it's difficult to assess this film and you, i constantly bring heat up because it's a masterpiece it's amazing, of yes. yeah but it's but it's from the it's from the same cloth let's not forget it really is from the same cloth when you look at Robert De Niro's crew, right? You have Tom Sizemore, you have Val Kilmer, right? All those three, they, they have one sequence where they go out and they have a they have like a blowout of a party and they spend some money and, you know, they're, they're giving wives stuff and, and uh, Robert De Niro has nobody there, he's lonely. In that one sequence there, not only does it push on the narrative because Al Pacino and the cops are watching them do it and they profile them, but you also get to see a glimpse into their lives, their, their respective lives. When you're in the diner, and it, they nod at each other, and they're going to kill Wayne Grow. Like, it's it's literal nuanced layers like that that formulate a relationship. Aside from one small sequence in the nightclub where Jamie Foxx grabs a man's fist and then twists it and then dislocates his hand at fingers, that's all you get from them looking out each, after each other. It feels like they're in two very different films. And when you look at it, like Jamie Foxx's issue, I'm not I'm not going to shit on the actor all the time. I feel like I am, but. Jamie Foxx has American, he has a US advertising uh, favorism. So when it shoots, in the, when, it, when it releases in the US, he's on top billboard. So he has name first. In UK territories or in mainland Europe, so does Colin Farrell. And I feel like that epitomizes the issue with this film is that no one could have devised who was going to get top billing. And instead of accepting that both of them are on the same palette, they're both like really screaming and crying for the film to take over and decide. And it doesn't, and if the then the actors are sort of like dying and fighting each other subconsciously or whatever to, to gain that top billing. And in the film, you can just tell like they're both on two very different wavelengths. They both are in two very different films. And, and I'm, I'm not to reiterate again and again and again, but if the film isn't going to choose who it wants to be as its main lead, and it, and it's not going to choose them both, then ultimately in the film they're going to scramble for airtime. And again, it's just like they, they both like they don't integrate together whatsoever. I think it's probably the worst single singular speaking, they both work very well. But when you bring them together, it's just so flat, it's unbelievable. And it's so difficult to sort of look at that as a Michael Mann issue. I think it's more so 
think it's God. a Jamie Foxx issue. I think if you I think it's this, I think it's a Colin Farrell issue as well. I think, um, I think it well, is. Listen to this. According to um, hold on, because I'm because uh, uh, I, I seem to to have to have stumbled upon this before. Now I found it. Fox, who won that's quote from Wikipedia, uh, who won he won an Academy Award after signing to do Miami Vice. He was also reputed mm-hmm. to complain about Farrell's larger salary. So Farrell was paid more. And then he moaned and moaned, and apparently he got a raise while Farrell, Farrell took a bit of the cut. Uh, well, took, took a bit of a cut. So basically, just they, they took some of Farrell's money away and gave it to Fox. So you could maybe see that the lack of chemistry is kind of reflected in there, that they have a bit of an animosity going on. Exactly. And it, it, it's created and it's then curated throughout the film. If it was me, I'd have dropped both of them and I brought Denzel Washington in and I would have brought Val Kilmer in. Fucking that would amazing. And like Val you just got, was done at the time. No, but Valkyrie was also in deja vu. Like he, he, he was yeah, he was yeah, a bit bloated, yeah. but to be fair to him, it's a re- Michael Mann, like it's a revolutionary thing that he makes with actors. It's very much like what Quentin Tarantino does. Like he brings John Travolta from the fucking death's door, giving they could him, have gives taken him Matt, they could have gotten Matt Damon and Denzel Washington. Like they were two massive bankable stars. Exactly. And and you know, <laughs> the other the other conversation would be Will Smith, but Will Smith then has the bad boys thing to deal with like and that's also shot in miami Ugh, i don't know but i think there's a massive Will Smith issue has a comedic, comedic appeal as well it's, it's a bit weird to kind of just try and i mean it would be interesting especially that he also worked with man on ali right yeah but also as well even though he does have a comedic entity you can still read a room really well as an actor like you look at me i am legend and what you say about that film that's fair enough if anyone has any issues about it when you get to the, when, with the sequence of his dog you, there's a there's very much a, a, a range of that actor that's not explored to the depths that he is able to do, and that's another sh- not to go on, but that's why I always think that he should have been in Spielberg's old boy re- uh, remake. But bygones be bygones. I think the issue with this film is just it just the two lead performances are just flat, and they don't care for each other. They don't really care about the film. I think both actors have come out and my, um, um, J- um, Colin Farrell's come out and said it's style over substance. Like that's that's cool. Like. It, it, it's just it was never going to work if at the beginning the foundations weren't built correctly and unfortunately it's a film that will it's an issue that will always plague the film you can see it in the best definition you can see it in the best atmospheric experience you ever want to but the core um, the core um, excuse me sorry the core of that film is rotten and you cannot ever change that unfortunately and it's just going to have to it's, it's, it's just a it may be a scar or a bruise this film has to face. Is it too much for anybody? I don't really think it's that much of a big deal, but for it to go to the lengths of the upper echelon that this film could do. I mean, scar is what, a make, what you know. Scar is what it makes what makes a face interesting. So you no, know. no, yeah, no. It's it's got bruises. It's got a life. It really does. It, but it, it is. It's just so. Uh, I think the hindsight thing when you look at it and you look, we look at the era, like I've said about. That, that what came before, what came after it. We've just picked four actors that could have easily done these roles. It's just one of those things where, you know, like I said, it's all about the ingredients. It's you think on paper it's all there, but there's a bit that you've done a bit more of this or a bit less than that, and ultimately it comes out like a fucking shit pie. You know I mean, like I'm sorry, but it, it's just one of those things. It happens in in filmmaking, but the problem is it's 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 a major component of a film that other, otherwise has a lot going through it. And that's what makes it even more disappointing for the casual fan, you know? Fair enough. I mean, okay, I well, think, not to speak Carson, I, I feel like, I just feel like for, if, it, if Carson, because I feel like you're very similar to me, like, I'm just very indifferent on it. It's, some, it's a Michael Mann film. It has two lead performances. It looks okay. But when you, when I so, saw, 
when you look at more about that, that style and you look at cinema now and I reflect on that film, I really do appreciate Miami Vice. But it, it does take so much of the individual to put forward into it. And it's not really fair to ask the individual to look at that. I think a film, when it's released, should ultimately do it and justify its, its means. If it doesn't, we have to look back at it in 20 years. What does that say for the film? Like, fair enough that Blade Runner, you know, we look back on it and it's two, two, three decades after the fact. But that's once in a blue moon. I'm sorry, but like, if we're going to look at cult films. There's a reason why they don't do very well to begin with. And yes, there's a multitude of reasons. But ultimately, if a film doesn't connect then and then 10 years or 20 years later, it's, a, it's, a, it's an individual problem. It's not a, a, a social problem, let's say. It's never really the film's fault. But I don't think it's fair for me to say, well, Carson, wait 10 years, rewatch it. We're different, we're different people. Like, I, I just think it's so unfair to... It's, like I said, it's just a shit sandwich, basically. Like, I, you can't ask much more for the film, but also I think it's very unfair to like ask an audience to, like, you know, you should get this. Like, no, give it five years. I think the, if the film doesn't work for you on, on first viewing, then that's, that's, the, that's the film's loss, I'm afraid. I mean, I don't think the film is terrible. I think it works fine enough, but I agree with actually Colin Farrell quite a bit that it's style over substance, really. I think the issue with Jamie Foxx, I'll say number one, actually, Jacob, I really like your comparison to the very simplistic Blade Runner that has absolutely, really just tells you exactly what's going on, tells audiences very... I think that's an interesting comparison. I think the issue with Jamie Foxx and, you know, I, th- I appreciate this is probably just a personal thing more than anything. I don't think he's that good of an actor. And I think Agreed. it really shines here when he has, when he's the lead and he has something he can chew on and he's the star. You can look at Ray, look at Django. Like I think he's good enough. I think he can reach that level, but when he's not the star, when he's not that main character, when he's not having that much to chew on, I think he's just not that good. And I think that's the biggest issue in the film. I like Colin Farrell enough for what he is. I think his chemistry obviously with the Jamie Foxx is off, but I think the issue is, I just don't think Jamie Foxx is that good in this film. Like I'll put it, that it, out there. You know, it's interesting because I, I I'm not going to keep on speaking as I feel like I'm taking over, but when you look at Michael Mann's filmography and you look about the actors who he wanted and who he gets, Collateral is a very interesting film because he, he wanted Adam Sandler as, as the cab driver and he wanted Russell Crowe as Vincent to re-team on The Insider. Russell Crowe couldn't do it, so they got Tom Cruise. And then Adam Sandler dropped out last minute to, to make Spanglish, believe it or not. And then... Russell you know, would have would have been an interesting choice, by the way. But but that's but when you look at, at that on time, paper, yes. When you look at that on paper, you think, "Oh, this is gonna this is gonna be grim," you know. That you know what the kid out of any any given Sunday and Tom Cruise. I always made a few comments, hasn't it? And then it just—it's it, a case type though at the time, yeah. right? Yes. Well, that's that's also a very interesting choice, and that's why this yeah. film is a five star with a fucking recommendation. Yeah, yeah, I, yes, agreed. But it, it just works. But there's no reason to say why it shouldn't do. But it just works because at the time, at the moment, everything gelled to perfection. When you look at Miami Vice, you have you have two actors perhaps he didn't want. Maybe Universal suggested it. Maybe someone said, look, we'll go for if we're going to have Jamie Foxx, we have to have Colin Farrell because he's the next big thing. Like, let's get Sam Worthington Avatar. Can't believe he's back for any sequel. But, you know, fair play to James Cameron. You know, sometimes you have to roll the dice and you get snake eyes. Shit happens. But it's just so interesting how this had everything going for it. And weirdly enough, the actual proponents of what should make this great, its performances, is its detriment. And I can I can probably think of it, if they give me 10, 20 minutes, I would think of it. But in, in this space, I don't know if anyone, anyone here could. But I just, I don't know any other film that its main proponents of why people would watch it or what would make that film great 
bring it down. Does anyone else have any other films for that? Maybe it's, it's so interesting. Stuff. Probably most stuff by like David Lynch, I would say. Oh, okay. Nolan, Tenet. Yeah, yeah, Tenet's a fucking cracking one. Yeah, Denzel <laughs> Washington. No, no, not not to like shit on it, but it, it is. It's like you have you have two mainstream actors that have a massive fan base. This that's actually fucking so eerie. That film's so close to this actually. Yeah, Robert Pattinson is is basically the uh, Jamie Fox, and then you have the Denzel Washington. That's like the, the Colin Farrell, which I mean, is John David so- Washington. Yeah, what did I say, John Washington? No, he's he said dad. Denzel. <laughs> He oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, it does look it does look spit an image of him, and he is his son. Um, yeah, John David Washington. Like you, you have an actor who's formulating a career, and you put it into paper. And I would say Tenet works more better than my advice because I think those two actors are probably better. I can't believe. I mean, one's one of the comparing to one that won an Academy Award, but um, I think Tenet is a really interesting example because you you have. You, I think that, yeah, that's fucking bang on. I wouldn't be able to go anywhere else. That's bang on. Actually. I mean, but then Tenet aspires to other things. Like Tenet wants to be this <sighs> massive, you know, sort of recontextualization of of something that he like this this, oh, yeah, this we film don't... wants to wow the, we'll uh, leave, the we'll audience. This, my... But Miami yeah. Vice doesn't want to be this. Miami Vice <laughs> is, is kind of like a meditation on on a. It's not a police procedural. It's a meditation on a police procedural. It, yes. okay, the thing, the thing about Miami Vice is that it, it fucks, it breathes, and it lives. It's yes. an, it's an entity that has life. It has scars. It has experience. Like it's basically, it's a, it's a film equivalent of like a fifty-year-old man who you know he's had, a, he's had, he has scars on his cheeks. Like he, 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 if you asked him questions, he'd probably tell you stories. But it looks, <laughs> but, 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 but if, but on the other hand, you could sit next to him on a bus and you wouldn't know. Yeah, I mean. That, that's, a, that's a very much Jakob uh, quote, and I, I've, I generally that. Well, that's, what else no, it, did work, you it works perfectly. I know I, w- I wouldn't be, I wouldn't disagree. I think, I think it's a, agreeable. I wouldn't say I like this film for its flaws, though. I think that there is, there are many of them. Um, one which, which is not a flaw that we need to speak about, and I mentioned it in my open statement. I do want everyone's opinion because everyone knows I like a good film score and a soundtrack. Oh, we'll um, get there. I have, I have, I have snippets prepared. Yeah, I think, I think. <laughs> Michael Mann, right, in every film he has made, has been able to securely make a poignant, thematically brilliant ending with a soundtrack. Now, with Heat, you have Moby's, um, um, what's it, uh, what's it called now? The Moby's, I can't remember the final bit of it. I've got it on my phone, I fucking love that song. Just Google um, it. Call, call no, it I can't Google it. Um, no, I'm, I'm I'm professional. I'll, it'll come to me. No, uh, moving on the face of water—that's what it's called. It has this uh, weirdly enough in heat. The um, God moving the, over the face of water—that's what. Yeah, it is. the um, the the Joy Division cover by Moby, which is when um, Neil is going um, through the highway and Vincent's chasing him in the helicopter. That was meant to be the Moby of the ending, but he switched it in post, which is a fucking great decision. God moving over the face of water at the end is generally amazing how that film ends. I think that. Public Enemies, JD, uh, JD Dies, is also generally wonderfully done. Here, Mogwai, that's so fucking genius how he does that. The beats of the uh, the drums, like do, 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 like on the piano. How he ends each film is meticulous. And here, it's so well done. It's unbelievable. But just about the scores as well. Oh, he's had all, he's always had an eye for, well, eye, ear for music, like Tangerine Dream and, and Thieves. Yeah, like yeah. it's, it it kind of carries. Like he has. Well, yeah. 
I think he's, um, you know, for lack of a better word, an audiophile, and he loves curating good music for films. Well, he did, but he's a sound designer as well. Like, he, yeah. he purposely likes real gunshots and heat. Like, he's, he's someone who very much is in, in, deep, in deep of the craft. Like I said, he's a, he's a filmmaker above all else. He wants, he wants a realism there. He's not really bothered about narrative, which it, it may be probably in, in hindsight is one of his big flaws as a filmmaker. But the excitement is there for the moment, and it's it always gives, about it's, momentum in film. It's about realism to me, at least. Uh, at least, I mean, if you look into, like, if if you ever look at like subreddits about like people who are um, like, okay, well, if films that are sort of great in the eyes of say people who are into like guns or military, Michael Mann's up there. Like, if you if you like read about like how people who are like served in the army, like like served like two tours in Iraq, they will say that the uh, firefight in heat is basically like proper shit as in well, they, should, they, they reload their them. guns the way they should the, the guns should be reloaded they, sh- they yeah. shoulder the guns the way they, they should be shouldered they fire like an app like they're proper proper bullets flying yeah. out of their guns well the, infamously they, 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 the, they use Val Kilmer's um, it, changing of the, the, the yes um, the reloading is absolutely yeah. spot on but even in Miami Vice you see like the sort of procedurality when they sort of descend on the trailer park there's there's very like in a, in a say quote unquote Hollywood sort of rendition of what it would look like. There will be people saying go 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 or whatever. Like no, everything's whispers because they you're, they're worried that someone's gonna hear them. Um, they they take their positions. They just maintain eye contact whenever they can. Then just like make make signs when they can. And it's it's all sort of like you look like you're just kind of just for some reason someone left the camera on when the police is uh, is executing a raid. Like it's it to me, it kind of looks real, and it kind of just works in that way. Then that's why I kind of like I kind of like this film so much. Yeah, that's that's the main appeal always from from man because every one of his films is about professionals being really fucking good at their jobs, and and the, even then, like they spent though there is no chemistry whatsoever with the actors, they did still spend like weeks or even months preparing, like with all of the other. Michael Mann films and it shows it really does show. Uh, but speaking of the music, yeah, it's it's good. It's real good. Um, I love to re-listen to soundtracks and things like that. And of the Michael Mann scores, even though I didn't like the film at the time, but even then, of all these soundtracks, this is the one I listened to the most. Well, I'm advice. And that's yeah, surprisingly, oh. yeah. And like uh, speaking of just soundtracks of original scores, is Thief because Thundering Dreams is awesome, but. Yeah, but see here, I have a th- I have a theory in here, if I may. I don't know, Kevin. If you want, did you want to say something? Um, well, yeah, I can. Um, sure. I mean, yeah, the the uh, the, the uh, music in this was was really good. It's the the uh, piano, the little piano piece at the end, and I think it plays during uh, the the end. Um, I think a little earlier in the movie as well, but it's just really great stuff. And then. Um, and on the uh, director's cut, they switched the end credit song with whatever was playing during that boat scene, and whoever chose that song was was definitely on their shit. Cause that just definitely makes that scene a whole lot better, and that's already an incredibly horny ass scene. <laughs> I guess um, I was I mean I, I don't want to say I have a theory, but then the score is done by John Murphy, right? And this guy. Well, he's been around since the 90s, right? But um, I have a feeling that, okay, well, I, I don't want to say this is maybe one of the reasons why it's kind of like, well, maybe the film's not so memorable, but the score is kind of like, 
when you listen to it, so in isolation, it kind of sounds like any like many other things. And then I, I yeah, I did actually dig out a few clips, and I'll have to kind of just um, look for them now. Um, when I was kind of just doing my admin work at, uh, at work in the uh, late afternoon today, so catching up on paperwork, I was basically just listening to the score, and then and I was like, oh yeah, this sounds like something I know. And it does, and it's actually quite fun as as well. Because you know, you know me, I like bringing score to the table and then look for 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 these little re- references. Um, so, like, hold on. Um, okay, you. I, I don't know. I might as well start looking, but um, looking now. But you no, know, uh, might as well continue conversation. I'll just quickly mute myself. Well, it's interesting that Rizzo was hired to do this score and turn it down as well, which would have been very interesting because he did Kill Bill in there. Yeah, and he did uh, uh, Ghost Dog too, which mm. that was that's a really good score. So it's interesting. Like he worked with Jamush and he worked with uh, Tarantino. But, um, it, the the I suppose the relationship with Man is a very difficult one. I think anyone who works with Man is put through the ringer, isn't it? Like, it's it's not. I don't think it's um. I don't put this politely. When you work with the director, like you would work with someone, like Scott says, you you would find it would be fun with with the uh, Safety brothers. It would be fun, you know. I, I think that when you would work with Michael Mann, I think it would be quite a testament to the the actual. Um, well, the identity of what you suppose you are as an actor, whereas I think Tom Cruise fits the bill perfectly, or Russell Crowe fits the bill perfectly, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, people are meticulous in their craft who want to research, research, research. And when you look at Michael Mann here, it and they're not not to sort of judge a character here, but I'm not, I'm not going to assassinate them, I'm going to judge them. Uh, when you look at Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx, they don't give the meticulous blend of wanting to research and die for that role where they're just hired guns ironically enough anyway i think that's another issue i think he's probably put together with two actors in a, in a generation that's not on the same length as it was a decade before it's, it's and it's probably more so worse now i know that not to bring him up but i was i was watching like a facebook offers me loads of fucking film clips so i watched them once in a blue moon and sean penn uh, was talking about uh, why he would want to quit uh, directing he said that in, in one of his films he was he was like, look, we've got till seven, but do you want to stay till nine o'clock to finish this shot? And the actor was like, no. He was like, what do you mean? We're, we're here to make a craft. And the actor was like, because I don't want to. I'm here to do a job, that's it. And, it's, and it was like, he'd understood that the evolution of an actor wasn't someone who wanted to be there from, from you know, all hours every day to, 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 to be in that creative bubble, but was more inclined to finish at a certain time, go on the piss at a party, and, and then have more fun wanting to do promotional tours and it really sort of struck me as like we actually do live in that culture now like i can't remember how many years ago that was it probably would have been when he when he was doing the gunman probably doing press for that which about 2015 so it'd have been six years ago now but it's interesting like when you put that in perspective i think we've lived that unknowingly for quite a few years i don't think it's just a thing now like you look at the junkets that like the avengers stuff and they're all having these massive like fun and stuff like that and Usually they make an absolute twat out of themselves, like Jeremy Renner saying, yeah, Scott Yanzel looks like a slut and stuff, and you just think, fucking hell. But I think actors more so enjoy the fact that they can publicise themselves more so than really get deep into exercising a character. And I think this film is the, is the beginning of the issues of there. I think it's... I just don't think those two actors are, are on board with really wanting to carve characters. They're just there to put in suits, look good, and that's it. But you could argue that's what Miami Vice is, isn't it? It's not really a, a meticulous sort of actor's paradise, but I don't know. Maybe that's just me being like a little bit too possessive. And and, and sometimes I, I like to, 
I don't know. I'm not a purist or anything, but when I look at a film and if an actor's in there not enjoying it, I don't mean wrong. There's loads of issues why people want, well, don't enjoy doing it. But if I if I look at the film and on on the on on the basis of of just watching it, not knowing anything about the history of, of that film whatsoever, if they don't look like they're enjoying the film, to me it just kills my enthusiasm totally. I'm just like, if you don't want to be there, like, why the fuck do you expect me to like, enjoy this? And it doesn't get that bad here, but on occasions I'm just like, wow, you two actually just don't like each other whatsoever. And I'm surprised that Mann didn't write that into its screenplay as well. There's a lot of stuff here where I'm just like, Michael Mann seems slightly off the off the. I mean, off the, the way I've written it into the script is just the script got changed every other day on. The yeah, script. that's by Mann though. Like you can't yeah. you can't be a judge, jury, and executioner because you've got no one else to blame. Probably part of the the uh, yeah the experimental the whole experimental nature of the whole movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Oh, by by the way, I don't know if you want to get into this, but as you were guys talking about this sort of animosity of this, I kind of dug out this sort of John Murphy bits that I wanted to kind of just bring to the table as a how how this kind of is interesting to me, and I know it's kind of just because John Murphy is a bit weird and can it's a odd segue. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, hold on, because <laughs> you're like that. Yeah, Colin Farrell, whatever. Like, here's the fucking score. Uh, hold on. Oh, it's my favorite segment. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I like doing these things. Oh, um, God. Yeah, so here's a piece from, I think it's called uh, Hostage Situation. Okay. No, no, that's the one. Hold on. Oh, maybe we can do that. That's, that sounds like RZA as well. Um, hold, on, hold, on, hold on. Which one is this? Uh, oh, you just gone past it. That's the one. Is that yeah. the one? Maybe that's the one. So listen to that. That's John Murphy, right? I know what you're going to ask here. You what do does it. it remind you of? It is. Um, hold on. Why is it? Can't see it here. It's. Uh, that's the one. Yeah, I fucking knew it. But there's more. Very sim, very similar. So like the chord progression, the melody is very similar. So you can kind of see how this is. You could sound. It sounds like it's something familiar, but but not really. By the way, this is a brilliant track. I will say though, Jacob, it, mm-hmm. it's not really out of the ordinary here because you look at John Williams' score, mm-hmm. who did the first two Harry Potters. Like there's a lot in there, and the and the Star Wars intertwine very very. Oh much. yeah, oh John Williams keeps borrowing from himself. Just you need to. Oh, did we <laughs> did we go through a lot of this on on the Black Sunday episode as yeah. well? Yeah, yeah. Um, Do you know there's, when... there's another one. Hold on, but that that kind of uh, that kind of t- it ties into something else, and I'll 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 see if you can f- figure this out. Isabella upset. That's the one. I like this. That's the one. I know what you're gonna do here. Just if you know, just, just just keep it to yourself. I want I want to see if everybody else figures it out. Because that chord progression to me, when I when I heard this and this time, I'm like, how how did this happen? Do you, do you guys know? That's also John Murphy's score, by the way. That is from a film that he did one year later called Sunshine. 
It's also reused in Kick-Ass and Woman, Wonder Woman 1984 yeah. as well. And by the way, spoiler warning, uh, Sunshine, we're going to do as an episode at some point this summer. Oh, I love that. I fucking love that film. I Released on the hottest day of the year. <laughs> Was so. it? <laughs> that's a brilliant piece, by the way. And that's been ever since like used in trailers or whatever, but, but it's the same chord progression. Watch sunshine now. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's really good. Blue right on. Do you know when they mm-hmm. when the uh, you scroll through that, there's a song at the end they use. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, uh, song or a piece of score? It's a piece of score. It's called. Um, it's like a military code. It's like A three something. Uh, is it like transshipment or something like this? No. A five hundred. A five hundred. Yeah. Tell me when you see it. Oh, there it is. Yeah, listen to this. Sounds like to me, um, like Godspeed you, Black Emperor. Like a little bit. I think that perfectly embodies what this film really is it, trying to be. It's yeah. I mean, there's also bits of this. Car- I'll oh, have to find it. That kind of sound like it's from like a Ridley Scott film. Like it's like from the Body of Lies or something like this. It's it's very do, do it's, you know, it's very interesting. Do you know who, who I love? I love Michael Mann. I love that he made this film. But do you know, in another life, where I'd love to have seen this make this film was being Tony Scott. The late great Tony Scott, Michael think, Mann, and Tony Scott are made from the same cloth. Made. <laughs> I love. I love both film. I have. No, I don't want to get too poignant here. I love both Scott brothers, the, but the fact they're from North of England, you know, is is always going to be dear to my heart. I love Ridley with a passion. That man is a cinematic god. But Tony was always the director that you, you could watch on any fucking day of the week, and you would have like bang for your book, like. Deja vu. I know we we joked about Unstoppable a few uh, behind the scenes, but he just he would just like, embody action wonderfully. Mm-hmm. I just think I, I generally do. I I know people say it on film to and I don't I don't believe him, but I really fucking miss Tony Scott. I miss oh, I that we, we're not going to get another Tony Scott film. But I just, I was heartbroken when I found out that no, he died. I, yeah, I mean, especially I especially in the manner with yeah, he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember terrible. the day actually. I remember like listening to the news and it struck me and I had only seen like a couple of his films and this was impactful. And it, just, it was kind of like an, it was an accident of some, some like it was kind of reported like something happened and then later on if you, if, like the same day I found, I found out that oh yeah that happened I'm like holy shit like I need to see Yeah that. I mean it, uh, not because I, I maybe it's not um, my place to talk about stuff like that, so I'll try to refrain from it but I just it's one of those things where it, it was like when when Sean Connery died, Sean Connery eighty nine, you understand that at that point Sean Connery is living a retired life. He, he he's living his own life. But when someone dies at Tony Scott's age in his prime of making cinema, 
it, it does hit you so hard because you realise that you'll never get that again. It's like Chadwick Boseman, like, like you just look at you look at like the, the Black Panther and you look at like Twenty One Bridges and the, you look at the one on Netflix that he made. That there's a there's a there's an actor there who who is he was not in his early twenties, he's in his mid thirties, maybe early forties at that time, but he's building a career and you can see it blossom. And when that's taken away, it's so fucking disheartening. And it's the same thing with Tony Scott because you just know that, like Ridley, he, he would make it until he in, until he couldn't. He's he, well, his bones would just uh, you know rub away. Like I don't see Ridley Scott ever retiring, and I could never see Tony ever Tony Scott ever retiring. But Again, he, that makes yeah. and that makes whatever happened to Tony Scott even more heartbreaking because you know that he went to a certain level in his life that that that's what he, he felt he had to do. But but. I just, I just find it heartbreaking. Like when you look at this film, like he just screams him, and I, you know, look at Deja. I think is Deja Vu like, oh God, is that oh six as well? It's the same I think year. So. I think so. Deja Vu was two thousand six or five. Yeah, 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 yeah. six. Yeah, I mean, Scott, uh, Tony Scott and Michael Mann have very similar aesthetics, where it's, it's a very much like um, a visualization of cinema. It's like we'll put forward this. This plot really comes secondary. We have a really good actor in it. We'll have fun. Man's more the art house, whereas Scott's more of the like, the uh, the the Picasso, and they're really hmm, like, they're very one. similar sort of like twin twins when they look at the films. Like when I look at this, it makes me appreciate Tony Scott more. But when I look at Tony Scott, it makes me appreciate that I've got Michael Mann. Like they're both two sides of a wonderful coin, and it's. I wonder if there's any sort of conversation we could ever find them between the two. I wonder if they ever spoke about each other's filmography, because I feel like there would definitely be a, an appreciation of the two. I don't see how there would be any bad blood, so I hope there's not. But patreon.com. Yeah, I would love. To, I'd love to. Um, I think I'm that'll be a, that'll be a good conversation. Time. Yeah, I mean, not to get so down hot on it, but I suppose when we do this sort of stuff, it's nice to reflect and appreciate the stuff that we don't have anymore. And Tony Scott's cinema, just fucking amazing, like then, true romance, like so fucking good. Uh, you know, there is also this sort of appreciation of like I know he was in. I think he was in his sixties when he took his own life, right? And then you see, yeah. And, but then every life that's kind of ended ends prematurely is it is is kind of almost like it's it's impossible to kind of make your peace with as in like yeah. Ridley Scott Ridley Scott is now 83 84 he's gonna die soon like it's not let's, let's, no, let's, let's be honest like human life expectancy is he's basically just he's reaching the limit of that right so you know, one day you're gonna wake up and you'll see breaking news on BBC or wherever, or like your Twitter's gonna go like a fucking Christmas tree, and then you're like, "Really, Scott's dead. That's it." And then, but then you'll be like, "He's had a life, and the life ended." And then whenever you see like Chadwick Boseman just succumbing to a terrible disease at the age of forty-three, or like uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman um, uh, yeah, I think overdosing on heroin, or something, know, Robin yeah. Williams, another one taking his, like, you see people, and you and you realize. There is a bit of the life that should have been there, and it's not. And then, I mean, the, 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 the Philip Seymour Hoffman is probably. I, I don't want to say that because it might sound respectful. I, I I really like Chadwick Boseman. I like him as an actor. I like him as a person. But he, I, I didn't invest in the actor because I, I didn't. I, it just didn't appeal to me. The, the Black Panther doesn't appeal to me. I find his work in the Defied Bloods far more empowering. Well, but he was think, just about to make his big entrance yeah, into the world. Yeah, yeah, like he didn't have the sort of career yeah, that Philip Seymour Hoffman had. The thing about Philip Seymour Hoffman is like he's just uh, when you when you read up about it, like when when he finished the Master, 
that's the, that's like in the after party that he, that he had his first drink like he relapsed and he, for 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 two years he couldn't control it and when you read up about it, you just think like it's so fucking heartbreaking like again it's like the fragility of an actor it's like it's the same thing when you look at sports stars and like, they get paid so much money like that's that, that, that that's an okay issue to have but it's all relative of, of, of the social order like the only reason why th- these people are paid so much is because loads of people are entertained by them it's, it's it's supply and demand you know so when like people complain about like actors you know they're so weird or like they're they're, they're, they're very fragile pe- fragile people when you look at the sort of psychosis of these people like, they pretend to be others and then have to go home to a family like daniel day lewis i think like I think I think he, he said something. I'm going to paraphrase, but like he's never been home, and he's never been like his wife's like had 17 versions of him. That's why he had to retire. And I find it so interesting that like, people are not really interested in the fragility of these performances. Like when you look at the master, there's something else going on there. Like when you when you look at like performances, and and then something else has happened after. There's definitely something else going on there. And that's the problem with cinema. Sometimes it it's a time capsule into a life that perhaps you don't want to remembered for but it's at the time it's your it's a craft that you can put forward um but like i said that it, it, it's de- generally a reminder that these people are also human like the, the, the chadwick boardman things like that's that's to be 43 and to have everything everything ahead of you in, in your life and that and to be taken away like that that's devastating and, and the tony scott thing as well that's, that's and that's running his family as well his brother also died from it because he did, he did have cancer, and that's he, he had irreparable stage four cancer. Yeah, I think so. It it's just it's just not to go on about because I know it's it's slightly downbeat, but it, I suppose it's one of those things where and well, we're it's just the room we're in now, so you know, like, might as well yeah, just make it, it, make it, it work. It's to appreciate the people you've got at the time that these people you don't know them, you feel like you do, and I think it's one of the thing about the, the, this this medium that doesn't get spoken about enough and we talk about like film twitch all the time i'm not going to go down that road but because i feel like Carson might have some shots for that but it's so interesting like i remember when chadwick boseman was was oh i don't remember but those photos came out when he was ill and when i looked at it and everyone was like you the first thing you think is like oh it's, it's for his next performance and no, then you really for, for his next round of chemo that's what it yeah was. and it's one of those things where you, i think as an as a as an audience and as a a spectator, we and this is I'm not saying we as a, as a collective. I, I would say as a, an individual thing, but I, I I'm part of that group where I, I still find it difficult to um, retract uh, what the, from from people who are actors and people sometimes because it's like when, when Hitchcock says, "Oh, these people are horses." You just take them to or the cattle, you know. And then someone says, "I think it's John Ford who said that um, you know these actors are just like horses. You have to take them to water." And then you get them, you know, you have to get them to what you want to do. They, they want to do it on their own. You can't make them drink, though. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> it's interesting because we often look at it like that because at the end of the day, they are a product. But it's so difficult when it comes home when you think these people are just people. Yes, they make millions. That's never really bothered me, to be honest. I'm not bothered that people make... I don't really care that for a, a Robert Downey Jr. makes 50 million a pop because I'll, be I'll be the one to judge. Um, if he deserves it or not, but it's his money. That's that's fair enough. Like that's a, that's a product he demands, no problem. But it does sort of reflect of like how much, as an audience, we demand from performers. Like the hate that people get when they're acting. I remember when Breaking Bad came out, and uh, the the um, I, I can't remember her name, but the woman who played Skylar, 
the actual shit that woman took because she would she was against Walter White's <laughs> manifest. Well, she of, took you know, she took shit for for playing a character, which I, to me this I mean, is yeah. kind of like this is like an I Oscar mean, for me. Like you know? that was that was very indicative of like that whole era, though. But like that and Kevin. Mad Men. Do you, do you think we've left that era, era Kevin? No, no, we definitely haven't. I mean, I mean, like Wyatt Russell. I just think like the shit you see him get, like, I just, like, the, the Kelly Marie Tran, it's, it's an intro, I know, I'm, I'm, I do apologize for bringing this up, because I know it's so off-kilt, and I do this well, every fucking week. Might as well just make people pay for this, because that conversation happened on a bonus episode. Yeah, so, <laughs> no, so, I, 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 gen- I, gen- yeah, I genuinely do. <laughs> you can cut this if you want to, I'm just getting this out, because like, so we're in the room. But ah, it's fine. I think, I think, you've, I think it's, these, when these occasions happen, and, like, people, like, go to um, rehab, and everyone goes, oh, my God, like, they're off the tits, or, like, you see in like these fucking magazines and these papers, these right wings selling like fucking papers, like 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 it's just like toilet paper and and magazines shouting just spouting shite, and you realise like these people are human, and it takes so much for us to understand that as like a collective as an audience. No, I'm not, I don't know what that fits in with my advice record, but I just think it, it's interesting to well, sort of be woken up by that a lot. Like, well, I, like when we watch this film, like I couldn't imagine like. No, but it would be interesting to see how, say, okay, well, what if I don't know, a film like Miami Vice would be, uh, how who would be received today in the sort of culture of, you know, I think it would be massive, and and whatever. I think I think it would. I would think it would be massive if if let's say if if the Safety Brothers, because I know they're doing the Forty Eight Hours remake. If they announced they were doing Miami Vice and it was it was Universal and they were they were picking actors, I think it would be huge. You'd be like, oh my god. Uh, who's going to do it? Like Wyatt Russell's going to do it, or I don't know, someone like Christine Bale is going to be in it. Like it would be huge, but it's just a bygone era, isn't it? I suppose no one's really bothered about Miami Vice because it came out in the decade it did. And maybe it I came mean, out- like all the, I mean, like the whole era, there was a bunch of like old TV shows getting turned turned into movies. I mean, we still haven't really left those kind of eras, but I mean, especially back then, you no, know, no Miami Vice, Alvin and Chipmunks, okay, Bewitched. Oof. You know, a lot of stuff was getting made. Nicole Kidman. Is that Nicole Kidman and fucking Michael Caine bewitched? No, Nicole Kidman and Will Ferrell. Oh, yeah, but Michael Caine's in that, isn't he? Not sure, actually. Yeah, I think he plays it. Uh, yeah, I'm sure he is. Are those getting their own Uncut Gem episodes also? Are we doing Alvin and the Chipmunks one day? No. Oh, jeez. Are I'm you serious? Oh. That straight, I didn't bring that up. No, if you're serious about this, you know. Like no, I'm not. Have... No, I'm not serious. <laughs> like, but, but I'll be honest. We have material to go on for six years now, without thinking. Yeah, that, okay, but let's be clear. In seven years, we're not doing Alvin and the Chipmunks. In nine years, we're not doing Alvin and the Chipmunks. It's, in, in twenty years, years we're not doing Alvin and yeah. the Chipmunks. Oh, you, you're, you're gonna you're gonna eat those words. Like, yes, yeah, like... <laughs> is in that. A whole series retrospective. Quadrilogy. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, but it, okay. It's an interesting one, especially we've drifted away to, from Miami Vice. So I have a feeling that this is also kind of a sign that we're kind of like reaching the end of our rope. And as far as the film is well, concerned, can I, I'll, I'll bring some up that might, you know, I have one thing like, I wanted to bring up, but yeah, go, on, go, go first. On, no, you go first. You go first. I just think it's interesting when we talk about this, when we, we look at like remaking TV shows, like the A Team thing. It's interesting how, like, even if you can have like nine, 10 seasons of formula where everybody's sort of, you've got a mass audience for it. It's very successful. You have iconography built in. 
it's still interesting how they managed to fuck it up. Like, I don't mm. think Miami Vice is a fuck up by all means. It does have its issues, but it's not a fuck up. But when you look at the A team and you have four and you have three, two, you have two massive actors. You have Bradley Cooper and Liam Neeson. Who did the A team as a director? That's, that's uh, been brought up. And Joe Carnahan. Joe Carnahan. Yeah, yeah Joe Carnahan. You know, smoking aces. I can never remember the, the UFC fighter's name. What is it? Um, Rampage Jackson. Rampage yeah, Jackson. Like, yeah. Ram, Rampage Jackson and uh, <laughs> uh, Charto, Charto Copley. Yeah. Oh, Charto now, Copley had an expiration date, didn't he? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, stop. It's just so interesting how, like, the, the you, you can still retain that. Well, you, you, you're trying to sort of in, capture that lightning in a bottle again. Ultimately, the bottle's still there, but you just let it go. And it's just, I find it so interesting how I think Miami Vice is what it is. I think you can have this film without the TV show, but a, the A team is built off that TV show, no doubt. Like it literally is. And it's just so poorly made. It's so bad. Also, like, just, a, the A team, the part of the appeal was the um, was Mr. T. Well, yeah, I also think in so, a modern day, drugging a black man to, with milk to get on a, on a plane doesn't really work. <laughs> As perhaps no, it was yeah. in the 80s, no, but then you know? like as when I was a kid, the, the the sort of the A team was kind of running sort of like okay before going to school. That's, that's if so, I, if, that's if that's I, so I'm so far ahead of my time. No, eight, but eight, then, before I would four, go to school, seven. the A team would be running sort of like at the seven a.m. sort of slot somewhere oh, like reruns, God. right? And then is this in black and white? No, Jesus, no! But <laughs> stop! Don't heckle. Was this hey, in sound or silent? Which one heckling. was it? Because you're stop heckling. heckling. Like, no, <laughs> not having it. Not the having A-team it. The A team on TV. No. See there Keeps you go. I'm saying I'm heckling. You were. I'm not heckling. I just. I, you, you make a good point. I'm, I make a point. And you go. Stop heckling. Stop no, because you're making fun of me, trying to insinuate I'm old. I'm not old. I'm at. The, I'm at my peak, as we've established. Because you, 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 were trying to. You, you were trying to like. What was the word when you do that? I can't remember what you're doing. But he was trying to... Well, he said that he watched Heat in cinema, and I thought it was very rude to anyone are else. You, are you trying to say say that I'm gloating? Yes, that's the word. No, not really. But it like, felt like Maybe with, with, with Heat a little bit, because I kind of feel like... Um, it, it's very personal to me, at least, that what? experience. But with the A-Team, I kind of remember, like, one thing I wanted to say was the, the fact that when it was on TV and I was a fucking nine-year-old child getting ready for school, eating cereal, and, like, my mom wouldn't give a shit because they, she was getting ready for work and whatever. So we'd be eating cereal and the TV would be on and Mr. T would be on. So that was the appeal. I'm like, who's this guy? He's fucking baller, dude. Like, that's that that was the what? A-Team, at least. What? Right? Baller yeah. dude? He's, he, he was like, I don't know. He was just it's a cool. presence. He was a presence. He was like, I didn't know he was a shitty actor, but you know. Do you know what, earlier when you said about Heat being at the cinema, right? I, I got, when I was, I was a um, president of Fowl Film Fest. Uh, Fal- no, sorry, that's another thing. That's another life. I was a president of the Falmer Film Society in my third year at university. And we had, we could, we could basically put anything we wanted on. And the first week we did it, we did it through Freshers and we did uh, The Exorcist. And it's fucking packed, right? And it was amazing. It's like it's um the state of the art mini theater in a in a in a proper cinema room. Like you have a hundred seats in there, all uh, like fabric, all and you have like a, a huge cinema. Um, Must you know, have been thing an experience. The, yeah, they have like a four K um, um, projector and everything. And we did the Exorcist on. We did the uh, extended unrated version. It was amazing. Oh, and then we, we we had we had a decision where we could put each week we could put what we wanted on. And we were choosing, like, we put Alien on and we do a double bill of Aliens. And then we tried to do Prometheus as well, like a triple bill. 
And one day, um, the heat uh, extent the the director's cut came out. On Warner's did it. It's like white white sleeve. So we put it on right. And a few weeks before, Ben Wheatley had come down uh, at Churro, a neighbouring sitter, and he put free fire on. And he and he told the uh, the, <laughs> the projection projectionist that he wanted um, to turn the sound up a little bit too high because he wanted the gunshots to be really powerful. So they, they did it. And every time someone, uh, if you've seen the film, there's a good, you should, mm-hmm. uh, this, that, that fucking free fire should be on this podcast as well. It's amazing. Every time the gun is shot in that film, you it's like horrific to hear because yeah, it, it's a massive echo chamber in the cinema, but also in the actual film. So the, it's like heightened sound design. And when, when we watched Heat, I decided I would do the same thing, not knowing the, the levels <laughs> or anything like that. So we, we, we put oh, it up Lord. to three quarters instead of like a quarter. And then, um, no, don't get me wrong i can imagine I, people were like, like the, the big firefight in the bank and everyone's ears are bleeding well, it wasn't it wasn't it, we were thinking we were already um, deaf to that because it was the, the opening sequence where um no one really shoots anyone but the the, the van blows up and it wasn't that bad and <laughs> wing grow shoots the guy in the head and the noise like i swear to god it, it was like i can still feel it in me like i absorbed it like, did, it, you, it, did you have like a Tom Hanks moment in Saving Private Ryan? Just yeah, I, was, I discombobulated like, like that, right? But nothing, if you think about it, nothing actually happens from that moment, gunshot wise, a sound from sound design until the heist. And it's 20 minutes of just full blast. It was one of the like, probably the most wonderful experience of my life, but one that like, I'll remember for other reasons for it to be majestic. But I was just bringing it up because, weirdly enough, I'm, I'm slightly quite, um, I don't want to put this night, night like, I'm quite annoyed with you and Kevin because I would have loved to have seen Miami Vice in the cinema because I think it just rips exactly what I want. I want neon or bisexual lighting as they say on film Twitter now. Yeah. I want stuff like that. Keep that in because that's that's the correct term. The, the, I, want, I want stuff like that. I want a film. I want to live and breathe it. And I feel like my age, I went to go see Ranger the Sith the year before. If I was just a bit older, I would, I, and I'm, I, I'm going to come out of a hot take now. I truly believe, right, that there are certain films in a, in, a, in a youth's life that if they are watched at the right time, they become the cornerstone and the foundation of what you build off your cinematic entities to become. So for me, it was The Matrix. I'd never seen something like that before. The score was amazing. The performance was like fucking amazing. The but sound that was, design was amazing. Was that, a home, that was a home video discovery for you, so that would be... Yeah, because that was yes, 1990. Exa- yeah, okay, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, and yeah. then I went to go see The Fellowship of the Ring, right, in mm-hmm. 2001. And I remember at the end in the cinema, and I was like, generally, I, I, I've never, I will say, I, I've seen perfect films, but like objectively, I think the first film is perfect. The Lord of the Rings. The second one, you've always got an issue. The third one, you'll always have an issue. But the first film is perfect. And those what two films, most of The Lord of the Rings was like, I, I generally love this as a craft. Like I can tell, I can I can differentiate between what means what. I can understand like the, the sound was amazing in that. Like it was different to look at. Like like how it was shot's different. Like so many different types of characters. Bear in mind, I'm like four. Well, yeah. I, so that was my follow up questions because that no, was no, sort no, of like I, you know you were very 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 young. So if yes, if I we oh okay because you've just gone on a tangent about fellowship yeah, yeah, no, no, and I'm kind of like old enough. If I was old enough when my advice <laughs> came round. I 100% believe that that would have then formulated my teenage years. Uh, I'm, 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 I'd, I said, you know, it would have been the best lesson. 
So oh, if I yeah. wouldn't have seen Star Wars, which was like, we meant quite a lot to me at the time because it came out just before I went to high school. So I was 11, maybe 10 or 11. If I were, if I, if that didn't come for me and I'd watched Miami Vice, I truly believe that that would have changed my cinematic uh, palette as well. And it just, it, it really does upset me that I missed that. Like when Kevin, like Kevin got to see it in the cinema, so did you, Jacob. I'm generally quite envious of that because I haven't really been able to ever see a Michael Mann film at cinema. So it was, it was always like brutal to know like, I can't, when Harmony Corinne talks about like Miami Vice and being like a massive inspiration, I feel like in the next, I've got to might contradict myself here, but in the next 10 years, right? In, maybe in 2026, when we have like 18 to 20 year olds, mm-hmm. I don't doubt that Miami Vice will be their favorite film. Possibly. I think it w- will be the, it will be the, the, the beginning of a new like appreciation society that then will bring that forward. Which but I gives think it's me- our job to sell it to them. I think I will. I think I think don't get me wrong. It's it's, it's going to be a, well. Hopefully, the problem is it's got two different versions. But if people are interested, like there will be. But I think it just fucking rips. Like I honestly do believe that it's going to formulate that an, an, another generation of filmmakers. I really honestly do believe it. It's the right era. It, it it's going to be there. For, maybe not so for the digitalization of it, which it should be in like film school. Because I know I, I've not learned anything about it. I don't know if you did, Nick. Like. No one can be asked to really talk about Michael Mann for some reason. Um, although, but he's at London Film School, yeah. Is it because he's kind of considered a little bit more schlocky or whatever? Like it's not, no, he's no, not it's art because, art. No, because he, he has a he has a resident he's a resident at the uh, London Film School. Mm-hmm. So, like he because he went there um, when he when he because he went for a year uh, when he was at Chicago. So he went to go learn film there, and then he just wanted to be a film director afterwards. So he has like he a, has a bit low brow, yeah. Yeah, so like yeah, he, maybe he, he, from the same crowd, like a resident there, so he doesn't do anything else. Well, because he because he makes gangster films, right? He makes police procedurals, so people so it's easy to to look down on him. And it's like, yeah, you're making schlocky entertainment with nothing to say. I don't like, think I don't like think Carson, he kind of just said to her, like, there's nothing thematically in here, which is probably correct. But then again, doesn't have to have much depth to be interesting, doesn't it? Sure. It's not I a mean, dig against you, by the way. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'll take it as one anyway. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think Michael Mann is one of those directors that just never caught on really to like mainstream. Like, I don't know. There's no Michael Mann conversations on film Twitter, really. Like, I just think he, for whatever reason, he's one of those people who just like missed the mark. See, I think I, if he I came know, out I now, is trying to I think make if this he conversation, would, I think if his filmography just pushed 10 years, I think he would be. But you see, Cass, I know why. And it's because his filmography has been reappropriated by different filmmakers. Now, I'm not going to go on a fucking tirade, hmm. but I'll say this. The only reason why The Dark Knight is success- successful is because it uses heat as a blueprint. I'm sorry, but the reason why Tenet it's is like built as it is, is because it's built off the blueprint of Miami Vice. Christopher Nolan owes quite a lot to, to Michael Mann. And the problem is, is that when you, when you reappropriate something, very much what Tarantino does, you ultimately become to define your own let's say ideology or your own aesthetic as your own, but technically it isn't. It's, it's homage or intercontextuality, which is a very slippery slope when you're trying to, when you get successful in popular culture, which both of those two directors have done. So when, when, when you get like fucking Jim Joe on oh, Jim Joe, I don't know what that is, but you get little Jimmy on, on Twitter, who's 14 and they're like, oh, God, have you seen the dark night? Have you seen it? It's amazing. Or then when they see something like Tenet more, more, more close, it's like, it's amazing, it's breathtaking, it's real cinema, this is cinema. You just think to yourself, well, actually, 
Actually, it's content. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. First, first of all, it's content. Second of all, I, I'm glad that you like it. I'm glad that it has a home to you. I'm glad that you like it. That's no problem. But it's when it comes to the sort of the naivety or the, or the, the not. I won't say ignorance because it's not really someone's fault. But there's a point where like you have to look at the house that built it. And the problem with it is nobody's probably at that stage now where no one wants to really do that anymore. So we live in a culture where um, I, I think everyone in this fucking chat can say the same thing: is that. I'll, I'll, personally speaking, I get sent quite a lot, like in the independent stuff. But when I go to the cinema, I go four times a week, maybe twice, and go see Double Bills. Mm-hmm. I, I'm consuming it at a rate I, I never did do before because I'm in a medium now. Like, I'm sorry, I'm in I'm in the the, the, the medium of like exploring this, this cinema. So I'm 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 taking so much all time. It's very rare where I can pause. So I can understand why people are not able to sort of like, well, let's look at this. Let's understand where it came from. And then, oh my god, like this came before it. That's cool. I just think that people are consuming so much. No one gives a shit about the. the um, there's the, another the thing more than that. It just doesn't yeah. pay to look back right now. Like it yeah. is, we live in a culture where you just want to get as many likes and clicks as possible, and that's going to be whatever is most relevant. And also, there's you got FOMO. likes and clicks for looking back at Miami Vice. Sure, I mean, you. I assume everyone would do it, but that's just not the culture we live in. No one actually cares anymore about like the criticism, or art form, or film history. They just want to get whatever is most popular, and then yeah. they just say whatever is most popular to say about whatever is most popular to talk about, and it's just yeah. dead. There, it's there's dying. that. There's that, and there's also the sort of fear of missing missing out because people want to stay on top of everything that's kind of new. And if you want to watch everything that's new, that's all you'll be doing because there's just also so much. oh yes, oh yes. Well, but when when you say casting, like it doesn't pay. Like it's like not only not only does it like um, to to sell those reviews or sell those features, which I think is fair. I think that that's the harshness of of, of uh, this medium at the moment, which is generally probably its worst aspect of it. But also as well, it's very difficult to go back and actually buy these films. Physical media at the point now where it's turning to digitalization has been for a while, but now more so than ever. But also, why pay eight pound to watch Miami Vice that you don't know if you're gonna like? Like, fair in mind, you can go to... Like, it's interesting, like, I paid £8 for it, like seven ninety seven ninety nine th- on, on iTunes. I feel like that's a very oh, bad take Amazon, because same. I think old films have never been more accessible as streaming services. I watch no, Miami Vice for free on, well, not for free, but on Peacock, a streaming service here for, and it was included. You have the Criterion channel, you have Netflix, yeah. you have all these, I think old films have Crime. never been more accessible. But see, that, that's, uh, that's fair enough, but, when, but we've had this conversation uh, before, Cass, and when, when you've got the choice between Disney Plus that mommy and daddy will buy because brother and sister will like it as well. Or you can buy, let's say the criterion channel. Uh, when you're on your formulative years, it's a debt. Oh. Very... No, yeah, but, but <laughs> you've got to think of it logistically. Like that's just not going to happen. Like my, when, if I was younger, there's no fucking way mom and dad would be like, why are we buying this? Like for you can watch my advice. It's shit. But I want to watch it. Like, but see, no. for me, the conversation is then like, it costs like you, you could say it costs like four ninety nine a month, whatever. It's like dad, it's like two beers. But no, I think but we're talking about two different false, things. The right? general public, I agree, though. Film Twitter goes on and promotes and fucking, you know, no, fair enough, whatever fair you enough. want to say about the Criterion channel itself. Like, it's just they don't watch anything on it. Yeah. <laughs> they just no, like no, the no, idea no, of it. They like Criterion. It's a, it's a terrible thing because it's like, if you actually go back and watch older films, they're fucking good. Like, these people are just fucking lunatics, probably smoking crack. But honestly, it's like, 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 how can you sit here and say, like, oh, I can't watch it because it's in a little box or it's in black and white. It's like, those are little, those, those are nitpicks. And I feel like that's a lot of what 
partly what criticism is nowadays. It's just mostly nitpicking and not actual criticism. But it's like you got to go back. You got. I have an understanding of what of what brought you to this point. If you don't have the understanding, then you know it's just shit. Yeah, and look at the actual physical Criterion collection now because it's so genuinely funny. See, like everyone will go on and they'll buy all the Netflix films on the Criterion, like the Blu-ray for the Netflix films. These are exactly the ones that I'm never going to buy, especially they're like twice as expensive as normal Criterion. Yeah, I might upset some people here, but I'm I'm generally got the platform to do this right. Very very lately, right? There's been something that's blown up on film Twitter, which is a Citizen Kane Paddington two debate, right? Where Someone had gone and found a negative review of Citizen Kane, right? Okay, and and then it's it's ultimately dethroned it as a number one film right? on Rotten Tomatoes. I think I may be the only person that's quite glad about that because the problem with that is that first and foremost, if people are going to sort of negate that person's opinion, then it undermines film criticism. It undermines and contradicts exactly what they're, they're there for in the first place is that, that that person thought that at the time they're allowed that opinion they expressed it they were paid for it. it's in print it's, it's fact if it brings it down the fact that no one sort of um, found that in the last 70 years is a detriment to that man's voice or that woman's voice so that's my first point secondly we need to stop putting so much high esteem on films that came out before 1999 like I'm sorry, but like we, this is this issue where then it's film Twitter more so than anything, but but it's also uh, film criticism where we look at like oh all these like best films ever made like Rare Window like they're very good films I agree, but we can't keep on just saying that these films primarily are better because of their age. We, we I, I mean at Mulligan Drive like the, like with the uh, BFI got like a massive major score and people were like horrified by it by beating like major films. We, we have like a, over a century now of cinema. Uh, we we, we oh. need, or almost, we, we, we need to sort of like really get a grip with, with not sort of putting something on a pedestal and saying like, this is the best thing ever. You can't come out and say anything about it. I personally like Citizen Kane, but I remember watching it for the first time in the very same theatre we put heat on and people said it was shit. People y- oh. use that vocabulary and said, it's boring. I looked at it and was like, like, but you, like, look at the Dutch angles. Like, it's amazing. Like, and the performance like, no, it's boring. Like, no, what people think like, you got to get over with that i, I just i think sorry I, I know but i just we need to stop putting things on a pedestal that comes no, there, there's one wrinkle i wanted to kind of add to this certain things you can see like heat you can put on um, in front of anyone and then they'll say that's amazing but certain things no you i disagree have to, no but then certain things you kind of have to watch through like a film historian sort of lens um and there's yeah, also yeah. another thing um, so like so certain films are not made to be loved certain films are made to be appreciated and then there's also another thing that's kind of like this massive fog of war surrounding cinema like if you imagine like 90 percent of silent films are gone you'll never you'll never see them um, another thing is there's films like citizen kane vertigo casablanca and whatever they may not have been the best films of their time but then they persist right so that means that they mean something to to some to to enough people that they kind of persist in culture. So that they 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 well, might they may be flawed, and they, these flaws have to be sort of um, talked about. Say like some people like Carson doesn't like The Godfather or whatever. Um, fine, but then 
there is a reason why this film persists because it well there is a reason to appreciate it so you might not like it but then there's then you, you might you might as well be sort of like uh, well we could we should be as a as a culture uh, respectful towards our history so that's that's one thing so like there's a reason why citizen kane still is in the conversation right um also i kind of wanted to kind of just bring it back to michael mann as well because i think you like, like well first can I, yeah first <laughs> can i go quickly no. i think number one like let's be clear like i don't really think just because it was popular back in the day means it should be popular now like that ignores everything like it's international a... cinema has ever done well, like anything yeah. ozu did i'd be hard pressed to, to say popular, like but it could be appreciated yeah, but it's appreciated now because it's mainstream and more people are talking about it. Like Ozu is fucking maybe other than Tokyo Story is completely underappreciated. But like mm-hmm. anything he did is literally a masterpiece. So, yep. but I think it's also like I think it is layered because I think we're getting to this point where I agree with you. Like there's this dark era, maybe from like 2001 to 2000. 15 let's say but now we're at this point where i feel like people are putting stuff on a pedestal like now look at the mm-hmm. conversation around like promising young woman literally 95 percent people who came out with anything against that film whether or not it was accurate or not i don't like that film so you know maybe i'm not the one to say but literally just random critics would be like oh i don't think the screenplay was that good and then the response to them would be oh that must mean you're a rapist because how do you not like this film Carson, did at you, this um, point well did you read the is it the New Yorker, the guy who did a review? He was like, he made a comment about something about Margaret Robbie being the producer. Perhaps he should, she should have been the star. And like, not only did film Twitter like attack him, but so did the studio and, and the, the lead actress Carrie Mulligan. They're like, like, uh, why are you oversexualizing a man standing? Well, like, also, variety, I'm, I'm, variety I'm, kind of basically just didn't. Let me just clarify. Went after don't, him as well. I don't want to misconstrue him because he said, "I'm a white gay man." I, yep. I've got no intention of. Was all, he's a, a sixty-year-old gay man as well. Yeah, he's like, I've got no intention of oversexualizing. These yes. are my thoughts. I appreciate it. And it was interesting how, like, like that 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 review would came out six months before the film. They even pull quoted out of his review. Yeah. Yep. And then that's, threw him that, under that's the bus. Where we're at now. And then through we're, we're at that past just promising woman. You can't have a conversation about the quality of, you know, whether or not you like these films is really relevant. You can't have a conversation around the quality of Parasite or Black Panther or The Lighthouse or Hereditary or whatever these films are. Because now we're at the point where people are just putting them on a pedestal and it's the best thing they've ever seen. Granted, you haven't seen any of the films that made those films. So like we've even had the conversation on here with like She Dies Tomorrow, like oh, God, or yeah. not on here oh, on Coppercast. Sorry. No, yeah, but, yeah, confused, I know what you but like we've had those conversations. That's just the thing now. So we're at this weird point where like you, everything that was mainstream, everything mainstream from that's old, you have to put on a pedestal because, oh, it's popular and it's old. We're at the point now where you have to put it on the pedestal because everyone else is. Everyone says Parasite's mm-hmm. the best film ever that, made. Yeah. You have to put it as number one then you have to say promising a woman was the best film of the year again whether you or not you like these films it's you know it doesn't matter the point is that there's a variety of opinions surrounding them and you can't like or you shouldn't ignore that whether you can or not film twitter will say you can and they'll prove to be right sadly but yeah but see there is also this thing that okay well the lasting effectiveness or lasting sort of uh, quality of something like Promising Young Woman or Marini's Black Bottom or whatever, uh, anything hereditary or fucking Midsummer. I, I don't know. This is not a discussion for us to have. This is a discussion for sure. us to have 20 years from now. And then uh, my worry is that with the sort of culture of a very short atten- attention span, because people are chasing the new thing every week, it, it, it it's not like most of these things will be forgotten. Like most of these things will be like, oh, remember Midsummer was a thing. Now it's not. And or like promising a woman, remember that. And then, so there's there's this, but then the culture in here is so um, 
intense and so in the moment like you you'll see the guy who actually like i got blocked by like 10 people on twitter when i made a comment saying why are you not people going after like think about this the guy makes a comment in his review it goes through an editor it goes through an editor's editor a copy editor like three people look at this fucking shit piece piece of writing and they say yes print it right and all of a sudden now oh no we don't associate ourselves with this guy like no fucking own it Variety should have either stood stood with the critic or uh, or not print the play in the, the bloody things in the, in the first place. Like someone had had a look at it, and clearly they um, didn't have anything against it. I think it's one of the best parts of. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple. I think I I really actually wanted to talk. I want to do a clapper debates about like criticism in general because I think look at like one of the main reasons I respect Robert Eber as much as I do and even Chris Stuckman I'll say I think Chris Stuckman low-key is like one of the most influential critics of the modern era and we can have that conversation Roger, one day, but like, YouTube, I don't like it. This I, I agree that he I, I, I don't know if it. I would say he's as good as a critic as Robert Ebert but I would say he carries the same weight towards our modern culture um, is there ability though popular, to look yes. back and their willingness to platform and champion those smaller films that no one's talking about from both right now and from the past and their willingness to look at what made these films and look, you know, Chris Duckman did 2001's um, God, the silence, I think it is. What is that one with Nicole Kidman? We're doing it. The others, maybe I forget. Oh what yeah, it's the called. others. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, others. Yeah, I know we're doing it. I don't cut gems eventually, but like yeah. the summer, fact yeah. that he is Coming willing period. to go in 2021 and do a review of the others is fucking incredible because no one else like most people are not willing to you know at least with his size of a platform i know nick you're really incredible at that in your own right as a critic so i'm not gonna say no one else does it but like i think that is what makes a great critic well, it's is it's not my, yeah. it's not the fact that you have seen everything or you've talked about everything but it's the willingness to find the time and find the energy and use your platform to champion those films that i think is really incredible well, there's two things before jacob sure feels up what just one thing about the castle thing at the first point about stuckman being influential i don't see eye to eye with chris stuckman on quite a lot of things um but i appreciate his voice and what, what's come out about him in the last few years is his maturity he's understood his position and he's evolved very well with it and i i used to have this very purist mind where i found that if you didn't and this might offend quite a few people but and I've, I've changed now i used to believe that if you didn't study film I think that your voice was that should should have been slightly neglected to the ones that do study it, and I, I do parts of me still believe that as a purist. But who am I to say that someone's voice doesn't count? And I find that Chris Stuckman's decision to go back to film school and to not and to have it in his reviews, you know, he does stay. He, he's, he's very uh, clear about his 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 opinions and how they may have to change in the future. And I was like, well played, because you don't have to do that. A really well played at maturity level. And issues he, he said about before about his sexuality, his issues with his family. I was like that for, for a generation of people, you may have just saved some lives. And I, I tweeted about it. And I was like, that was that, honestly, it was quite not to say breathtaking because that might sort of like put it melodramatically. But I was generally quite proud of him by doing that because he will have he will have saved some kids with that. He will have done like that's his viewership. But just to, to push back, um, uh, not to push back. I will actually push back on it. Um, the one thing that really upset me about Jeremy Johns and Chris Stuckman, right, is that I don't know about Jakob, Nick and Kevin, but I know you, Carson. I know that me and you get fucking hundreds of emails a day about films. I get from all film festivals all over the world. I get I get emails constantly. Can, can you review this? Can you review that? 
half the time I send it to the, to, to the, to the website and the other times I either can't fit it on or I try to do a bit more. We both know that's, that's the realistic point of where we are now. When, it, when during lockdown, right, my issue with both of those two is that they didn't take advantage of, of exercising their right to showcase, showcase the even smaller films. I think one aspect of it to show the others and to, to do a, a Halloween episode about stuff, I think that's all well and good. And I'm not trying to tell him, I'm not trying to sort of appropriate what he should be doing with this platform, not at all. But I think they majorly let down um, the, the, the industry that, that, that needed them at the time. For them to do South by Southwest, perhaps, or to do a smaller film festivals, to do a film like Fried Barra, for example, just a random film in my head, or to do another film, I don't think they realised how influential that could have been to that market. Like, we got sent emails, and I don't mind stating this, I was told by South by Southwest, if you don't like the film, please don't put a review up because we're just really worried that, you know, a year's time, no one will see this. And I did. I, 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 I accepted that. If I didn't like the film, I wouldn't, I wouldn't publish the review because I felt, and, and again, you can say, well, no, actually, you, sh you, should, you should do it both hands. I don't think it's fair to the state of that industry was in at that moment to shit on them while they were down, you know? And I, and I think we did a very good job of maintaining a, a livelihood during that era. Where other film, other other film uh, critics, I'm not going to name him, but if you go on film Twitter and you can go on Letterbox, he is there. He's a patron of it. I'm, I'm not. I'm not going. I'm fucking dying to say his name, but I'm not going to. He published a review. Of what, no, no. Will you actually, Billy? Uh, will you actually do that? Uh, I can bleep it. Yes. Okay, I'll bleep right. it. He published a review of a film called <laughs> "Is about a Pakistani family in New in Chicago." And she was a dancer, and she, her dad was like a really conservative cop. Uh, and and she, the, the email that I was sent about don't don't name the film either, but, but do, do, just don't bleep it all out if you can do the names of everything. Um, but I was told if you don't like the film, please don't publish a review. I watched the film and I quite liked it. I thought it was very poignant. I really liked the performance of it. The main actor plays a terrorist in most films, so I thought it was appropriate to get that voice out that he had depth and range. And not just showing the same old shit about about a, a, a non-white character who had to be a, a Muslim terrorist. He was actually like a different character. I thought it was quite influential to, to do a review on that. I gave it a strong review. I liked it. It's a shame we're not RT certified because it would have done them a, a world of good. That person wrote the review negatively on Letterboxd and got paid for it in one of the publications. Now, to me... If you're in this industry, which, let's be honest, and quite frankly, it's on its arse at this moment in time. It has having, it's having a curve upwards, but it's on its arse. To do that, I think, is so detrimental to the whole regime. It's unbelievable. And that's the only issue I had with Jones and, and, and um, with Stuckman. I do not think they, they did the depth as they could have done. And I did tweet that, and I got shit on. And I got majorly shit on. I remember that like, someone was like, like just tell me like don't you need to like let it go. I was like, I've done one tweet. I'm not I'm not really upset about it. I'm just disappointed. I'm like a, a mother. Like I was really disappointed in both. I know if I know if anyone wants to come back to that, it's fine. But when you say Jakob earlier about um, you know, we should wait for these films to come out in forty years, it made me laugh because there's a there's a, a William Freakin interview with Nicholas Winding Refn. I don't know if oh, anyone's yeah. seen this. I've seen this. Talk, it's amazing. Yeah. He and, thinks and he, uh, only God forgives is a masterpiece, and yeah, no, just yeah, laughed he, him out of a room. It's not that he says his drive a masterpiece. He oh says, yes, yes, of course, yeah. William Freakin says like 
It's not. Uh, it's not. Two thousand and one. Please, dude. Yeah. It's a, it's a, well, that's why it brings to St. Kane up because we've had seventy years of that. Because it's not a pimple on the world's arse. And when we think of it, we do live in an age now where Carson's right is that we have to put everything on a pedestal because if you don't formulate to a to a, an agenda, especially especially on a place that's so tribal as on a platform of social media, you're a contrarian. Like I remember a contrarian being someone who would purposely go out the way to disagree, to create, like... Well, contrarian animosity. would be someone like Armand White. That would, would have no, been his, his shtick. Like, no, see what see what the name. consensus is, go against well, it, right? Bleep him out. He's, on the, he's coming on the podcast. Uh, no, saying. but then that, that's the sort of mentality, like, of, of seeing yeah, where the, where the I, consensus I, is and purposefully he, finding the other he, sort of perspective, he, he right? He takes that agenda in, in, a, in a purposely difficult way, considering, like, the political culture of where we live now. Like, he is not. I don't want to, to cut this out because I generally don't want to talk about him because I feel right. like it's a, it's such a fucking dangerous topic. No, keep <laughs> it in. I'm, I'm 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 not. Don't cut anything out. I'm not, I'm just not going to say anything else. But yeah, let's let's mark it there. Rights about certain things, and he knows he's going to get um, a, a a fucking shit fest for it. And Whereas on Twitter, I didn't like Roma. I'll be very. I can I can sit down with someone. I'll explain why I don't like Roma, and I, I bring this up all the time. But it's like. You get sent death threats. And I, was, I know this like goes across like but it's see, a therapy. But if it's you count every week, but, but if you count out to, to this sort of like basically like, what you're trying to say, all of you are trying to articulate is the fact that we now can't have a conversation because because there because there's a there's a pitchfork mob. If we if you go and say if you refuse to have that conversation, then you're basically apologizing to a pitchfork mob, and that never no one's ever come come out on top from trying to apologize yeah, I, to, I, to I, a pitchfork mob. Yeah, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because what Carson said now is that when you bring a film like Miami Vice, it's like someone has just has just like found it and it like gets screen grabs of it, and it's like, my God, like how did we sleep on this? I'm like, because you weren't born then. That's why, like, we weren't. Like, nobody was like born in that era. I mean, people who were born will be like, oh, or you were expecting no, something not, else, not or people. you preferred to departed. Yeah, may, maybe. Which was but basically like think... two months apart. Yeah, which again, not 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 a great thing for my my command and my advice, but I do think we live in a world where it, it's really. I, I, the one thing about this, this conversation we're having now is that when someone does fire my advice on film Twitter, and it's like, because I've done this I, I, a few months ago when I was doing my essay, I did. Excuse me, I did this. Uh, I, I was like, oh, I can't believe I slept on this for so long. Like it fucks, and I do, I do, I do think that. But it's when like you see. When you see that, and you see like from like someone who's got like seven followers and, and follows like 155 people, when I see that, I'm like, good for you. I'm glad you found that film. But when you have like major, and I mean major people on film tour with like uh, 700,000 followers or 25,000, amazing. Yeah, you just think like, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that you found it, but it's quite clear that you're trying to set a trend here. And you're not, again, yep. I can see through that bullshit. I just, you know. Maybe that's me just being a purist again, but it's interesting. I like my advice. But people with a platform, uh, this is this is their sort of responsibility to kind of champion things like this, and that's pretty yeah, much what you've who, who what we've touched say, on anyway. Who are we to say otherwise? I'm not going to shit on someone because they like a film. I mean, we all joke about it, but at the end of the day, like, I, I, it's like we we we've, again. I bring Cass up because, but I have to bring him up. Like, I, I when I watch when I choose to watch a film today, I watched Nobody and I watched Chaos Walking. And I watched loads of shit. And when I look at cast and reviews, I'm like, I'm not gonna like this. And I'll, I often enough, I'll just be like, fuck it, I'll get off the watch list. That that's that's how much I generally put into Carson's opinion because it, it reflects mine. I can't say about anyone ever. 
I, I hold casting quite a lot of esteem there, but if casting likes a film that I hate, I'm not going to fucking shit on him for it. I just find that, like, I just, it's so immature at this point. Maybe because we're, 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 at, uh, uh, we're at a more, more mature stage in our lives, I don't know. But I find that the, the retort about Miami Vice on film Twitter, like, it's just being discovered. And if you don't like it, you're a contrarian. But if you do like it, and again, I'm a problem here because I've just, I've just literally explained this. But if you do love it, like, you consider to someone who's doing it for a trend, it's, a, it's not like it's just in a world now where you can't really win whatever you do. I feel. I mean, you know, oh yes, there, there oh, is, yes. but there is a universe I'm, in I'm which a you can. With that. I'm, 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 a, I'm a party to play there. I'm not, not, I'm not, I'm not going to clean my hands, you know, with blood stains on it. I'm a, I'm a problem there, but I still think it's a rancid place, regardless. Right, but okay. you have to, you, you know. What I wanted to kind of do that, no, because now, now we're drifting away very, very far from. No, we're not. Uh, well, kind of are, but. <laughs> There's, there's a few, few things I wanted to kind of just, like I'm sitting here and just trying to think, how can I, I can just wind this all back to kind of the film because we're very, very far away from the film. And then there's the, the idea of, say, like if you discover Miami Vice and all of a sudden now it's like you, you, there are genuine reasons why you can discover it and, and genuinely say, and oh, I, I like this. But then there's also one, one thing, I think, Kevin, when you mentioned, um, well, there is a reason why we should watch old films because because there is, the, and then you, Jack, said, well, the house that built it, you need to appreciate these things. And there's mm-hmm. also when you compared this uh, to Christopher Nolan, and then um, I, I kind of had this sort of thing I wanted to say. That Michael Mann, as like when you ask people what Michael Mann, what do you think? And then they'll say maybe Thief, maybe Heat, maybe Collateral. That's pretty much what people will remember. Do you, do you truthfully think if you ask the majority of people, they would even say Thief? Because I don't think they would. Yeah, probably, probably, yeah, probably Collateral more than on, on Twitter. You may be, yeah. you may get Thief. Probably you'll get Heat most of the time, right? But but mm. what what I wanted to say is now when you say like not like when like famously now on many shows you said like the Dark Knight is basically heat with Batman in correct right um but now you think I, I think to myself Michael Mann is one of those filmmakers kind of like Tony Scott where basically well, but a bit more because he's as I said in the beginning like he's basically made the eighties at the in nineteen eighty one and no one really gives him the credit for it he made the nineties in nineteen ninety five no one gives him credit for it he made the two thousands in two thousand one and no one gives him credit for it he's the guy he's this is gonna be a like Jack's gonna say this is such a Jakub thing to say he's a guy who's who's in a packed room at a party he says a funny joke no one hears it and there's the guy next door who's a popular joke he repeats the joke and everyone laughs so He's he says the funny joke, like he makes he makes heat, no one hears it. Christopher Nolan says, "Hey, you know," he he repeats the joke with Batman, and and all of a sudden, like it's a masterpiece. So appreciation needs to be paid to, to the to, to the to the person who's kind of like he doesn't have the voice to project, or it gets shouted shouted down at a in in a crowd. So. And one of the reasons I wanted to kind of, this is how I'm bringing this back to Miami Vice. There is a genuine reason to, to actually think that Miami Vice also, 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 also deserves the credit as a film that's not just a failure. It's, um, it's a genuine, genuine sort of um, almost like a, an example of how, why Michael Mann is, is a powerhouse. It's, it, it kind of comes back to the digital filmmaking that we've touched upon a few times already. It, the digital filmmaking was a godsend for man, in my opinion. It was um, because in 1995, when he was, or 1994, when he was making um, Heat, or in 1980, when he was making uh, Thief and Heat and whatever, 
he would have to ha- carry these films on film. So the cameras were fucking huge. You had 10 minutes of film stock on it. That's it. So you had to, you know, Green, Paul Greengrass films this way still, right? He, he will make like Captain Phillips and he will just film everything on film and just doesn't care. But for all of a sudden, like you have a camera that's this size, you can put it on someone's shoulder and everything's kind of immediate. And that's, that's how he does it, right? So all of a sudden he's, he's, he's being given this sort of ace up his sleeve that he can just put cameras in weird places and then he can just put like that's why you say oh yeah public enemies every why is it on on in handheld because he can like he wants you to feel like this is real and then because it's digital now you you, you kind of have this sort of immediate connection that digital filmmaking the way he does it it looks like it's like like a piece of reportage for uh new for a news item like this is like like miami vice actually feels like someone's try, trying to shoot cartel land like to me oh yeah like this, like there's so and and also and because he doesn't get permits for anything like they can see that the scene with john hawks on the on on the highway i bet you money they didn't get a permit to shoot in there they just got out of a car with a boom mic and a camera and just shot a few minutes and fucked off before the police got there right <laughs> so and which means to me like let's bring this back to to another filmmaker that's always 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 kind of underappreciated even though everyone knows him he oh, for, to the sort of popular filmmaking, at least to me, like this, this could be, let's just say my final point before we move on, because I think there is not much else to talk about in terms of Miami Vice. I think we've kind of ex- ex- sort of um, exploited the subject a, little bit, a, a lot as well. But uh, in the sort of mainstream filmmaking business of making police procedurals, he has the sort of, he is the Werner Herzog of police procedurals. Like he's the rogue filmmaker. He make he he made he made this sort of happen with digital cameras. He just makes it look like it's it's a film that was kind of just made while no one's looking. Like it's amazing almost. Like and and he he deserves the credit for it. And it's our job now to co- connect these dots. And then because we watch shitloads of films, it's our job now to say, look at this guy. He made a film in two thousand six, and then it kind of just you can see it it. It connects in score to other things. It connects through filmmaking and directing and whatever. And you, and you can name drop these things from in from the past and say this is why it's worth your time. But yeah, I, I, that's my point. He's the very hard talk of of police procedurals. But yeah, could be, you you said earlier like, and I, I, I just not to like to create a final question here, but I think it's really important to ask. Out of everybody here, does anyone actually think this film is a failure? Do you, would you do you would you consider this, Jack? About everything we've spoke about, no. Do you think I, it's a fail? Not not against like, not on on reception, but as an entity. Do you think it fails anything? Do you think it's a failure? I think okay. on paper, yeah, it, it would be a failure on paper. But going through it, experiencing it, seeing it, it, it that's a that's a hard argument. Yeah. Because I, I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm. Go on, Nick. Go on. Sorry. Go on. No, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's meant to be a reboot of a TV show, something that probably gathers on itself, but it really doesn't. The characters don't feel like what they were in the '80s. So, on that point, it is a failure, and I, I, I still believe most of the criticism it got at the time is fair. I was reading some of the reviews from the era. It's very fair, especially the cinematography. Now we accept it as style. That's that's cool. It's very cool style. But at the time, <laughs> it's it probably looks even hor- even worse. Especially if you watch it on a DVD. I cannot even imagine the quality on that. Yeah, it's bad. So, mm. I'm 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 
I've, I've, I feel like I've come really nice full circle here because I agree with Kevin. Like on paper, if you set out to make the film that Michael Mann wanted, I think it failed at that. But in the same breath, like Jakob said earlier, I like that failure. I like that it has that scar. I like that it it has bruises. It has a it has a life. Like it's perhaps not a thing that that um, was really envisioned, but as an editor, it, it's quite compelling. And I, th- I, I, th- I think it serves its purpose wonderfully. But as I go back to the beginning, like it's 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 my, it might be my <laughs> it might be my second favorite Michael Mann film, but I just don't think in Michael Mann's filmography it touches. I think it's about middle ground for me, but I don't think it's not a failure. There's more. There's films that have come out with far far bigger uh, plots, far bigger budgets that have failed on a on a, a monumental level. I don't think this is a failure. I think it'd be hard to press the really sort of do that. But I think Kevin's right. I mean, on paper, it's not the film that was meant to be. See, on paper, yeah, exactly. I would say, well, there's the film has problems. Like it's undeniable, right? Yeah, like, yeah. So in the middle, there's there's bits that you just like. I don't know what's going on. Like there's it's weirdly edited, and you see that there's probably compromises that's been made. It's very like sometimes some at some point you're like, why is she being kidnapped now? What's fuck? What the fuck's going on? So like it's very sort of weird in places and it has its flaws and also aesthetically i can understand it why in 2006 because it i think it's shot in like a weird frame rate as well like i don't know 30 yeah, frames a second or something it looks like it's, it has motion smoothing on yes yes i, th- I think it's, it's the shutter speed as well they played a lot uh, with yeah, the shutter speed like and everything's high speed really as well yeah. um so it so it kind of looks like a like a colombian soap opera oh, like, no it just has this sort of tv aesthetic <laughs> I, I I wouldn't go that far. Um, I don't think. No, no, I'm 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 okay. I'm being. Is that conscious? But, uh, you think then? Uh, I think it's a it's a stylistic uh, point. Like he knows what he, what he wants. He wants this sort of. Okay. Feel, I, I think he wants this to look like it's a like it's a TV documentary. Okay. Yeah. Like a made for TV documentary, not something like you know, Errol Morris would have made with a <laughs> 35 millimeter camera. Yeah. But yeah. But, but you know. Something that um, two dudes would make for a sixty-minute panorama, oh, wow, like, yeah. like where they where they just shadow two people who infiltrate a gang. Right. Yeah, that that's to me. This is, this, this is the aesthetic that he's going for, and I, this is why I think, think if you if you if you vibe with this, if you <sighs> if you un, if you do the legwork, like with, without doing the legwork, this film is a failure. If you if you just say it's boring, it's uninteresting, nothing happens. But if you make these few steps, it um it works. It fucking sings. So I think with this, we might as well just say, how about we go around the table and then do our sort of like if it's a gem or not, and then do top threes and whatever, because I think we're you know, we're basically just already there. So that's yeah. just, just really quickly before that. I'm not yeah, sure. trying to do you not think this is prime for a sequel? Mm. I would fucking love for him to be like, look, <laughs> next film I'll do, we'll, I'll do Miami Vice, blah blah blah. Um, I don't know if we get he'd get the two cast members back. I think he'd probably get them quite easily. I don't think he'd be able to get Colin Farrell, but I think he'd decline it. But I think Jamie Foxx would do it. I think Jamie Foxx would need would it. Michael Mann directing and writing. Oh, or, or just uh, whatever. no. I think I think I think he produce. I don't think he would make it. Would it? I think he would produce I would, it. I, the, I would see a Safi Brothers sequel to my advice. I would see a Peter Berg sequel or a remake. That's a fucking good shout. That's a fucking good shout, actually. Peter Berg would be too much. Safety Brothers would definitely be that good middle ground because I feel like they're probably more so 
kind of like those those torch bearers in terms of kind of following the path of that that man set out mm-hmm. undoing. You'd be like bad boys for life. John Turtle Tab wannabe, then yeah. <laughs> no, I, 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 I on his I, name, I would really like see the director of Drive do it. Not that I think that director is like God tier or anything, but I oh, think he'd be okay. interesting. I think have you like what about, have you seen his TV show on Amazon, Carson? No, I've heard good things though. Apparently, like it's really similar, but it's very slow. Okay, I know you've seen it, Nick, yeah. haven't you? You watch all of them. Yeah, I've, I've watched the series. It's one of those things where it's like you have to Painting. really, really just sit back and. Just take it all in. I also think that. Go on, Kevin. I just think, I think with Drive, I think he's on record, he's like, it's just lightning a bottle. I, I think it's difficult for Refin to be managed in a, in a studio system. Well, he's Although never I think like you're bang on if you make a good one, but I just don't think you can work with Universal. I think Peter Berg, I think he's shown so much nuance, Jacob. Like, I don't really like Patriot Stake because it's like, you know. Like I just I don't if I if I have to go to cinema and wear the flag to me it's not not my experience. But, but I no, think but then if you look at Patriots Day as, as something that Michael Mann would make, like if you think like the last forty minutes of Patriots Day is basically heat, as in you're in there on the ground, the camera oh, no. you're just you're just you're just oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it's immediate, it, it, it's, it's tactile, it's visceral, and that's pretty much Michael Mann's filmography in a nutshell. And then yeah. I think that's pretty much what Peter Berg took away from him. Yeah, I, I also think that Peter Burke can can do set pieces. He can do tension very well. He's very he's, much he is he, like he's, he's a very the bridge much, between Tony Scott and Michael Mann. Yeah, and I like that. <laughs> yeah. The thing about Peter Berg is that he's. I just don't think he, he he can draw big enough names to properties. Like I know he has a relationship with Wahlberg. Like you'll have Mark Wahlberg in there anyway, so you know. <laughs> yeah, you know what? As, as the uh, Colombian villain, big, no, he'd be he'd be crocket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what four foot three, Matt Wahlberg? But you know, if, know. but you know, like, but Carson, you mentioned Nicholas Winding Refn. Like, I'm, I'm just thinking, like Nicholas Winding Refn makes films that, like, he takes inspiration from Michael Mann again. I think, but he makes entire films out of what would be a dream sequence in Thief. <laughs> oh yes, I mean, he actually stated that uh, Thief was a ma- massive inspiration for Drive. Even the posters are copied. Yeah, yeah. So, um... so, so is um, Driver as well. The, uh, the the film Edgar Wright famously stole from Baby oh, Driver. Oh. Walter Hill. Yeah. yeah, Walter Hill, yeah. Fuck. Can you imagine it's still on my list? I haven't seen it. Do you know what? That's a good one. The, the, a good the, one. These, these three people, the Safety Brothers, <laughs> Peter Berg and Wanda Riff, like, they would be like three totally very different Miami Vices, but I would... <laughs> I, would I want them to make these things simultaneously for three different studios and then release yeah. them in the same summer. I'm just sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, this, yeah. this is, that's, the, that's the Hollywood way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like you know, Volcano, Dante's Peak, Armageddon, Deep Impact. I want three Miami Vice films, fucking two weeks apart. <laughs> the Prestige and the uh, the Illusionist. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's definitely like I watched Illusionist of an Eye. That film's terrible. It's fucking shit, man. Jesus, <laughs> it's so the bad. It's like the, the Prestige still still holds up. Oh, the Prestige is that's probably Nolan's best film, in my opinion. That'll be a separate discussion, I think. Um, but okay, let's let's just say once we're, once we're here because we're drifting away again. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's keep it keep it fucking focused, boys. <laughs> so let's go around the Can table. Just... <laughs> is is Miami Vice, in your opinion, deserving of it of being a gem, an anchor gem? Is it worth your time fifteen years after the fact? Kevin, go I'll first. Be, I'll just say go. On. It very much is a gem. It's like a there's like a diamond in the rough, pretty much. You know, 
it's just one of those films that I would definitely say it's it's an experience. Some people hear that immediately turned off, but I feel like that's the the easiest way to to describe this is just an experience that weirdly washes over you. That's beautifully put, Nicolo. Now your turn. <laughs> As a heretic who didn't like this film the first time around, I will say yes, this this is an uncut gem. Uh, probably, maybe even the, my favorite one so far we've talked about on this podcast. It was just a completely, like it blew me away revisiting it. So yeah. Black Sunday did nothing for you. <laughs> not to this level, not oh. to this level. It's like top three, top three. <laughs> Can't even Carson. Have we have have we? Cons- Wait, Congo didn't things? do it for you, Nick. <laughs> Shocking. Um, I feel like it's kind of funny with everything I said because I don't think this movie's that good. Like I don't know. It's it, like with everything, like we have all these big conversations. I don't think this movie's like it's fine. It. I think the style's fantastic, but I don't think the substance is anything special. Like I really feel very indifferent about this film. I don't hate it at all. I think overall it's like I'm positive on the film, but like, is it a gem? I can't say it, but like you know. Happy other skin. Okay, Jack. Now, now it's your turn. Go on, go nuts. I can... Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think this is a gem, but this is most definitely um, an uncut gem. It, it, for for the Tisla namesake, very much fits um, to, to what you're what you're trying to do here. And I think it's probably the best example of what an uncut gem is. Um, so, and again, like like Nick said, this is probably my favorite film we've discussed. Even though we, we haven't really discussed in depth the actual film itself, because like Carson said that. There isn't really enough substance to, to actually discuss it in depth. There's no political indifference. There's no subtextual conversation. You could say it's influence on war and terror. It's home video aesthetic. But really, at the end of the day, I think it's for, for people who admire Michael Mann and who, who, who sort of want to put style over substance. And sometimes there's nothing really wrong with that. I, again, I, I'm, I'm a person who would probably, on hindsight, first viewing it would, would probably be in the camp of um, being that as, a, as a negative thing. But now more so than ever, I'm, I think it's probably one of my favourite films within Michael Mann's filmography. But um, it, I, I just think it's not it's not the <laughs> it's not clean enough to be a gem. It's just not. It, there's stuff that's not right with it. There's stuff that until the day I die, if I ever watch it again, which I probably will do, it'll all still have the same issues. I just can't see them ever being rectified because it's fundamentally an issue that that that, that the film holds, which is the casting. Other than that, I think it, it, it does its job very well. So it is the epitome of an uncut gem, Jacob, the epitome of one. Yeah. Uh, but, but then again, when we say it's, there's not, we haven't discussed the film, I disagree. Because I know this is <laughs> style over substance, but we've talked about, but the style is fucking baller. Yeah, yeah. And then we've, I think we've done it justice. We talked about the style of this for two hours and then we drifted away into fucking... Do you, you think know, he's made a better looking film than this? Aside from Thief, because everyone will say Thief. Um, well, I, I see I see this as he has two distinct eras. He's, it, it, there's the pre-collateral and post-collateral man, because I see Heat is the most sort of beautiful looking film in terms of, because it's just so crisp. Yeah, it's very, it's a very mundane color grading film. Though. I thought that would be a detriment for you because yeah, you got like it, browns just, and grays. It just feels feels amazing, feels amazing. And then then there's after that there's the sort of hyper stylized man that's kind of like because even 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 Thief is kind of more tactile. So I I don't think it's the best looking film. It's but it's it's one of the most interesting looking films. Obviously. I'd agree completely. Um, 
I'll put it this way, and I do think it's an absolute gem. And then this every <laughs> single time I watch it, I love it even more. And then now it's and now I think even with its flaws, I think it's four or five stars. I can I can I can talk, I can oh, I can spend God. two and a half thousand words writing an article explaining why this film should be regarded as a forgotten oh, masterpiece. I'll say I'll say it on Monday then. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Maybe I should do this, but then again, I kind of feel like I'm spent on this because I've spent two hours talking about this. So it's going to be difficult. But yeah, I do feel feel that it's it's truly deserving to be discussed as and rediscovered, reappraised, and then it deserves to be uh, seen by people. It's I don't want to say it's been slept on. I think at the time people were in a di- people were in a different headspace and that's just the curse of michael mann he's yeah. always a, a decade yeah. ahead of everyone and i think <laughs> yeah um and that's pretty much what it is so i have a feeling that we have a consensus it's a great film uh even though some people democratically speaking it's a great film i'm sorry <laughs> um, um so let's go around the table top three moments scenes oh, wow. out, out of the film who wants to go first fucking do do whatever. jack you go first because you just like just have your hand uh, head no, in your I, hand. that's I, I didn't i forgot about this that's so tough um top three scenes in no order i love the nightclub sequence i love the whole nightclub sequence until john hawks is introduced and gets desecrated by that truck that whole sequence literally is amazing with the light lighting the the, the light the lightning in the background the purple mm-hmm. skies the Fuck, purple um, skies against the green uh, lighting in the um oh, it's uh, so in the good little, in the little trailer park it's so mwah, fucking, yeah yeah, yeah chef's oh kiss <laughs> yeah and, and especially like the, the ferrari's going with the blue uh, fires coming out which is not a pra- not is it's actually a real practical effect that's what the car does that's um, I, imdb trivia for you um, that's definitely the whole sequence there is one the second one is is oh my god this is too tough I really like uh, the trailer park sequence but I also really really like the ending when it went with Auto Rock with, with Mogwai so then I can't the ending I, ending on the boat when he when he takes Gong Li and whatever or just yes okay. and it starts with the piano like okay. generally that's one of my favourite endings um, I, I that I, could, I would not be able to like put them in order. Like I just think visually, I can feel it. I can feel the cold. Like I love that in fucking Miami. Like it's lightning in the background. I don't. We need to stop doing this because the more I talk about this film, more I can go on. But no, those are this is why we're doing it. I fucking love each sequences. I'd I'd love okay. to frame them and have them as an entity, like replaying all the time. I I could just feel myself in each sequence. Like it lives and breathes energy. Oh god, man, that, that, that's fucking so tough to pick. But yeah, those three. Has okay, to be. who wants to go next? I can go next. I have it. I have them written down, so it's helpful. Um, I'm gonna do like the worst, like the worst three moments for me. I mean, best, um, best, top three, top three. <laughs> first, the best. Okay. Yes. So. <laughs> Early in the movie, when some like FBI informants, whatever, are assaulted, uh, ambushed in a car, and there's bullets flying, and they use actual dummies and actual bullets. There's like this, like one of the arms gets hit by the bullet. Oh, fucking flops. Awesome. I forgot about it's that. Like, yeah, oh, it's just seared that in my head. Me. Like that's like the, the image. The first time I watched the film, it just stayed in my mind, rent free. <laughs> this is like and a Walter Hill moment. Every time I think of this movie, oh yes, oh yes. Um, <laughs> I just love the whole like headshot inside the trailer as well. I know it's all oh, about yeah. graphic shit, but yeah. Is that with a sniper as well? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yes, no, like, it, no. It's it, a rifle. In, in, the, the, uh, fin- in the final fight, yeah, the, he gets a, an assault rifle in the face. 
Oh no! In the previous one, when they go to save uh, Naomi Harris. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. The, the other lady in the office or whatever. Yes, yes, and just the whole speech she makes is wow, oh, it's good. Um, but my <laughs> my favorite moment is the whole like when he gets with Gong Li the first time. Mm. I'm a fiend for mojitos. They go on the boat ride. They go to Havana. <laughs> but they have I to love have it. mojitos. Like, oh, it's like, oh, we're in Havana. We need to have a mojito. <laughs> of course, of course. And I think that's that's my favorite moment in the film. That's what makes it. Because we haven't really talked about the emotions of this film, but again, like I, I love movies that don't need to explain relationships. Yeah. You put those two together, those stairs, you get it, you feel it. When they're there in the nightclub dancing, do you dance? I do dance. They're just moving together. I think it's incredibly sensual. It's, it's incredibly better moving. than a sex scene, that dance scene, by the way. It well, is, it, it is. It's interesting that... I don't think anyone here would, would ever put sensual and Michael Mann in the same sentence, but you're so bang on, Nick. Like, no, because you look at here, yeah, that, that's, 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 that's entirely a Miami Vice. Yeah. Just, it's definitely, like you said earlier, it's, it's this sensual. Is a movie, yeah. This is a movie that fucks. I might watch it again oh, yeah. tonight. So that's fucking piqued my interest. <laughs> I, hope, I hope the other two have got something good to say because that's fucking decent. Okay. Okay. Um, um, Nicola, is that your three already? The best moments, yeah. Okay. Kevin, go next. Because you just you just um, transitioned in there. <laughs> oh, I guess um, like one of one of um, of, of uh, Nicholas' moments, the uh, boat scene, definitely. That's just again this peak, the music, editing, all all of that's just ridiculous. But it, I, I don't know how how you can really top a scene like that. And then you know, personally, I do like the the uh, the uh, director's cuts. I do like like the opening scene, the bow, how it kind of steadily builds the action and kind of really sets the mood better in terms of how, how the overall film is and also like the little bit that it overall adds with like character moments like there's there's a scene in the diner with Naomi, with uh, Naomi Harris and uh, Jamie Foxx though they're talking about no is is she safe because no the the bad guy just randomly sent sent her roses and she's like no I'm good I'm good just just do your job and that's kind of like even though there's not a whole lot of character moments, that's one of like the few character moments you get in there and you really understand that though. These characters are just, they're good at what they do. And that's kind of always like the basis of, of the Michael Mann movie. And then I guess probably the, the final, probably definitely still say the, the cinematography, but that would also kind of six in with, with what I would say is also some, some of, my my bad with it as well. So that's all I got to say about it. Cool. Carson, your turn. Top three. Yeah, no, it's funny. I forgot to do this when I was actually watching so kind of retroactively. The ending is, de- and this is not in order, the ending is definitely on my list. Um, the first moment where you're at night, and it looks incredibly shitty, actually, when they're just standing around watching, and I thought my TV was glitching. But then it cuts to the close-up shot of the car. It's that really interesting angle, and just it's so grainy, and the light's hitting at this perfect, really natural, yet like beautifully crafted sense from the street lights. Like That blew me away, and I was like, oh, shit, okay, wait, hold on. Maybe we're getting into this, because at first I was like, ooh, very iffy. Um, And then my third is just kind of like multiple moments, but just the general slickness of this. And just like, for the lack of better words, just like the sexiness of some of these scenes. It is so, just so cool, but even past cool, it is just so- Arousing. Almost, like genuinely almost though. Like this movie just has that edge to it that is so hard to find in the cinematic space, but this Mm -hmm. film does it so effortlessly. 
it is really really impressive cool it's not like it's not like passion though is it it's like it's further than that like it's yeah. not it's, it's it's difficult to describe it because i agree with you Cass, like to to say it's romantic or it's arousing it's like underwhelms or like undermines what it actually is it's like a pure form of just passion like when 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 uh, kevin then just said about jimmy fox and omar harris i forgot their scene in the shower like that could be so gratuitous to another director and for michael mann i wouldn't put it past him like that not to dig it in but that scene where in the shower and she's she she's washing herself and then she washes him in the embrace and and make love. It's like, like it sounds it sounds quite voyeuristic, but it's like it, it demands you to be there. Like I feel that their love so much. And you're like, guys, can I go now? Yeah, well, it's not it's just like, in the se- like. To be clear, it's not just like in like the sexiness or in the sex or mm-hmm. in the that like it's it bleeds into every moment of yes. this movie almost like but way the- past just that it's it's hard to talk about without reducing it in some way it just yeah on I agree. Some, such a deep level but see, it's like nick it's like nick said when they're when they're dancing it's like do you dance he's like like when they just i don't know it's just like in this every- is pretty much like do you dance do you want to have sex that that's to me like that's no, the yeah, equivalent. It does, but again that, that side undermines the sequence because it's 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 like full of like brooding passion no, because like, they have proper passion for each other. Like you can, you know, there's a, there's, there's some there's sexual yeah, go, there's, thing going on. Yes, yes. Colin Farrell is a devil. Yes, but no, but she also kind of likes. I want this now. Let's do this. <laughs> and it, but it's it, like it's it, built it, up wonderfully. Like yes. I just, if I if I was like if I was there in that room, I'd get like second degree like passion off that. I'd be like, fuck, like this is amazing. Like you just want to watch them. I don't. Even, I don't even want want to want to watch them have sex. It's nothing like that. But I could sit there in that in that um in that club in that nightclub, and I could watch them two embrace and dance all night, and go home and 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 have like and just like really really find happiness in the fact that like you just saw that moment happen. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it sounds like I'm being sloppy. Or like, and they dance very well too. But it's like they just fucking fit so well. It's like it's like watching that moment when you see two people come together at just the right time and it fits and bear in mind like for for, for uh, hollywood um, antics as well um, um colin Farrell's actually 11 years long, uh, younger than gong Li as well so again it, she's not uh, yeah. 23 and he's not 48 so it's a nice sort of counter um thing to to hollywood standards as well I just thought it was wonderful to watch. I, I know I keep on talking, but I actually fucking love this film now. We're talking but about then, it. There's one thing I wanted to mention before I go into my top three, like, and because we're on the like the shower scenes. And when I was, when I was watching this, I had the sort of weirdest sort of thing that I kind of remembered. Because then you see Jamie Fox and Naomi Harris having um, like the shower scene, and then there's later Colin Farrell and Gong Li have a shower scene, and, I, and you just see this. Like I was just like, this is a director or control. Like, and this is like reminded me of Seconds by John Frankenheimer. There's a massive sequence in there where there's like a thousand naked people, not a single nipple on screen. So, and I'm just like, this is like you can see these two naked people just very dynamically moving in front of the camera, and you're like. Not a single nipple scene. Like this is Michael Mann's genius. <laughs> well, you like, know how I feel about sex scenes as well. I'm, I'm more well, for a. Let's not go there now. Anyway, my top three. <laughs> <laughs> my top three. Uh, let's just say, in no particular order, I think, the needle drop to Lincoln Park and the initial set piece. Yes. Um, yes. Because I didn't see the director's cut. I saw the theatrical cut. You you turn this on and you just and it's just this neon light, the silhouette of a I think a woman. Or maybe it was Colin Farrell. I can't remember now. I think it was a woman. Yeah, it was yeah. a woman dancing. Yeah. And then just you're in a nightclub and you can already feel the sort of 
sweaty oh. sort of dense atmosphere in them it's just brutal amazing i love it um that scene where jamie fox talks to the doctor about trudy recovering and then i have a thing that they hired a real doctor for this because it feels like they, they, this guy this guy is just laying out the truth for him like feels very real to me this feels mm-hmm. like this is this is like paul greenrest going like you're a doctor can you explain to this guy that his 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 wife's not gonna live okay and then she he, the way he says i don't like her chances or something like this or you know uh, she might not make it like it it's it feels like it's not written it feels like it's kind of in the moment like they just caught mm-hmm. a bunch of police officers in in the hospital and just filmed them it's very 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 good and the final thing i had in the final firefight i mean the whole thing the whole set piece is amazing but there's one one time i think there's two times actually but there's one particular time when the camera's behind these two i think they're they're not police officers these are the gangsters and they get shot and there's blood on the lens all of a sudden yes, and yeah, yeah. keeps the blood on the lens for like it's 10 so seconds good. he's like fucking this happened let's do this like this is this is like Werner Herzog doing like we're fucking doing it <laughs> like, <laughs> bro like you can you can feel like my like Michael Mann going like keep rolling keep rolling like you know just we're doing it um yeah so that's an amazing oh, wow. scene do you know often or not that, that would um that would like slightly be like against what I would prefer but in that sequence you're talking about because like it's so heightened, it fucking worked wonderfully. Like when it's fake, when it's like fake plastic blood, it looks like it just takes me out of the cinema because I I can understand the realm of the mirror. But uh, in that sequence, because it's aesthetically like well chosen and it's because it's like a practical effect, like you can feel like the fucking energy off that. Like, in, that's in, so an good. interesting counterpoint for this would be like Children of Men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, but but you can see this is staged and whatever. Then, but this 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 feels like they just it feels raw. This, yeah, this just raw. This happened, and then they were like, "We're keeping it." <laughs> so you know. So these are my top three now. Bottom three. Who wants to go first, or do you want to go in the same order? So I don't can't remember who went first. Jack, I think I mean, went first. I mean, I, uh, you know, we, we should have I've just <laughs> you've just dropped me on such a high. Like everyone's opinion there, I fucking love. Like I'm not. I no one. Actually, had an incorrect opinion there. Like, There's no such thing as incorrect opinion. This is why we no, here. there is. Solo is uh, amazing. Yeah, Sorry. there definitely is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, stop me. Yeah. Come on, stop. Um, <laughs> well, I'll say, I'll say this. Um, oh, I don't, oh, I don't think the chemistry is there for the main performances. I don't think Colin Farrell and Jimmy Fox are really chemistry driven. Um, I don't think we have enough scenes with the actual police party as, as understanding them as a as a collective which would then solidify the ending a little bit more for me and thirdly i'm just really upset that we didn't get a sequel i would really have loved to have seen these people in miami during the summer really explored a different era like maybe three four years afterwards with it with the with the, the fashion the culture i just think it just brewed so much to go back into that era like in the actual summer season of miami florida and that's nitpicking but the first two i can live with but i do i do often think what if i really do nicola i hope that answered that's fine you know if you want like a sequel of everyone having like summer in florida everyone has like armpit stains no but it's like like (laughs) like 45 degrees you know what's really (laughs) interesting because this movie's so dark and if you made that movie so like in the light in the bright sun like that'd be a nice like it's dark but it's not it's it's neon washed that's well, sure, reason. but it's you know like what, what I mean. Yeah, it's like what Nick said. It's like it'd be bad boys for life. Like, th- there's definitely like a camaraderie appeal of that film. Like, I must admit, when like they do the uh, scanning of Miami and they do the, the 
you know, the crane shots and the, the drone shots. There is sort of like a, oh, wow, such an interesting place, but it, it, it is such like a, a vibrant, populous city. Like, I just yeah. think that, my, I don't want them to go like on the beach, like in like fucking speedos and stuff like that. I just think that there's definitely like, we, we like Carson said, it's a very dark, gritty, raw approach to Miami. But I think when we look at a film and the sweltering heat and the ramifications of that, like drips of sweat, I think that it could be a really nice companion piece to see them in two very different scenarios. I mean, that's just me being a fucking purist, but I really would have loved to have seen what they did. Like, but see, just like, what if it came out now, like to see them, like, it'd just be bad boys, but to see it in like, also the sequel would have to be a period piece. It would have to be like, oh well, no. But see, the, the reason, like you mentioned, it's like you don't like the chemistry and whatever. If, it, if they had chemistry, like if they act, like this is pretty much like maybe a blessing in disguise, as in, if they if they had chemistry on set, this would be like oh this is just a lethal weapon. This is like bad boys. No, I no, I don't want them to fucking like take care of each other's kids. I just think that <laughs> I, I I suppose actually my second negative would would improve the first. Where if we had more, because the only sequence you really get is when they go to meet Eddie Marsden's character, which I think is a director's cut. When when I am Harris like just comes out. It's like, a theatrical as well. Yeah, it's like she just annihilates him. That when they're eating like. Breakfast yep. round there. Like, that's the only sequence yeah, where I'm well, there. That's in, that's in the theatrical, yes. Yeah, that's the only sequence yeah. where I'm like, like these people like, I think are friends. Longer like, in directors. Yeah, because she she threatens to throw him out out the out the window, but like she's a one possessed there. Like she she has the camaraderie, the tension of of the lead two actors, and at that point put together, and I'm like, I want to see more of that. And the film just doesn't really want to maybe because it's 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 two hours twelve. It's not a short film. Let's let's be honest. But I just think there's no camaraderie in the sequences, but I think that would improve my initial point. So really, I've only got one negative, and it's just no, not enough camaraderie. Where it's, I just want them to see them, you know. I don't want to see them, like fucking like look after each other's kids or grow like you know cut each other's lawns, but I just want to see more like dependable on each other, like a team thing. Which I, not to like make that sound like an immature thing, but I just wanted to seem to to, to be, uh, you know passion for each other because the fact that the film is full of passion for singularities and individuals whereas them two together they just feel like they're rivals but I suppose to your point earlier in the podcast I would I would I don't think I've got much room but I do again my other points sort of just redundant but I would like to see it like 2009 something like that a few years after Fair enough okie dokie uh, let's, let's move on with the top bottom three because we're kind of just drifting away again uh, Nick, oh, uh, Nick, Nick. fuck you no 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 it's just like okay well <laughs> we're trying joking. to close the discussion and we're like yeah we're, we're still talking about Amethyst because it's amazing <laughs> I can't help it I'm, I, I apologize I, no I'm don't apologize but, you know, like, we, like we're, I think we're going to hit another three hours <laughs> oh, well um, anyway Niccolo you go next yes bottom three so number one like Jack said pretty much whenever Farrell and Fox interact I mean if you look at look Look at the poster. Look at the promotional tier. They're bored in that. They don't look cool. They look like they, they look want to hang out with each other. <laughs> they don't look the other way. It's ridiculous. Uh, second moment. Once again in this podcast, John Hawks dies after being introduced. It happened in Congo and it happened here. It's becoming a constant. And I'm just like, it's so good. Why can't like he have Sean like, Yeah, he's just getting bigger roles. It's good knees um, bounding down. You should watch him in that. He's great in Deadwood. I love Deadwood. Mm. Um, and finally... Uh, Winter's Bone. Is he Winter's Bone? Mm, yeah, yeah, close the yeah, yeah. And lastly, this is only a theatrical cut problem, but they don't play in the air tonight during the climax. Leading up to the yeah, shootout. Very strange. Blasphemy. 
like I, I watched the director's cut. <laughs> but it's true because I'm just like I'm was, I watched the director's cut years ago, and I remember being like, "Well, that's a good way to build up to the climax." Mm-hmm. And then I watched it yesterday. I was like, oh, "When's the song gonna kick in?" No, no, but when's it gonna kick in? And then just start <laughs> shooting. It's like, is it? Is this like a Mandela effect? It's never happened. Instead, no, it's only the director's cut. So, yeah. Fair enough. Uh, Ke- Kevin, now your turn. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, first one, say just cheesy dialogue, just typical. No, it's no man's not really. Sorry, uh, man's not really much of a writer. Writer, you know, he can get a good story out there, but I wouldn't really call him a great writer. And some of some of the dialogue and some of the dialogue deliveries really, really give great example to that. And I would say I didn't like some some of the music in the movie. At least, like some of like the uh, the uh, licensed music, goes all like kind of bad mid two thousands rock. Wasn't a big fan of that. And then, like I said earlier, the uh, digital cinematography. Some aspects of it just don't always mesh with everything else. Even though like it's great, but then at times it's not that great, and it can be a very big detriment to the overall film. I think. Cool, uh, Carson, go. Well, since you since you try to rush me, I'll say quick fun fact no. before I get into it, just no, to extend my time a little it. bit. Michael Mann <laughs> is born one day before me, so I kind of wish he was born one day oh, later, so like, we could share a birthday. Hold on, like he's seventy three. Well, February f- the day. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't don't try to put in that same bracket as you, Yaku. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> um three okay so the bottom three moments uh when they're just talking in the night scenes like i think when they're in movement and stuff is happening it's really fine like i'm not bothered at all by the noise when they're just sitting there talking and the entire sky is like glitching out a little bit distracting a little bit bad i would say um number two and this is not in order jamie fox i just don't like jamie fox that much i don't think he's good here and i think he hurts colin farrell quite a bit so that's not great, even though I do think Colin Farrell survives. And then number one, again, this is just kind of general. Like, I think the lack of thematic depth, I really love the style here. I wish there was more to connect to. I wish there was more for me to kind of sink my teeth into and love about the film. Um, but there isn't. So whatever. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I think we have to kind of just put this on. I think you mentioned this before. Like, the, like your sort of first bottom moment was like, it was bad enough that you had to text me. <laughs> so, Jakub. Well, I just want to make sure I was, literally I thought my TV was breaking or the stream from the streaming service was or something. I didn't know what was happening. Okay. Um, okay. My bottom three is okay. Uh, in no real order because it's very difficult for me to find three things that I kind of don't like. Um, one thing, Colin Farrell's accent. Jesus Christ, you get paid millions. Hire a dialect coach. You don't have to pretend like, like, oh, like that's harsh. To, no, because you know, like some, like you know, like you get paid ten millions. I can just, I can just hire someone to try and at least sound like you're an American, right? Jesus, it's like Emma Watson can do it. You can do it. But it's just like it's a pet peeve, right? It's a little nitpick. Also, um, n- another one. It's not a particular scene because I can't re-pinpoint this. There's a time and um, and this might actually be a dig against the theatrical cut. Maybe I would have to re- revisit this when I when finally I, I get my hands on the director's cut. There's 
moment in the middle of the film, there's quite a few things that kind of happen simultaneously when they organize the big shipment of these fucking guns and they talk about who, how they're going to flush the mole out and then these things happen and all of a sudden Naomi Harris gets kidnapped and then all of a sudden I'm like, what the fuck's going on? Like, I'm just losing <laughs> plot in there. Like, it kind of looks like it's it's just poorly edited. As in, as in either poorly edited or it's just kind of re-edited at... Um, like in a rush i don't know like no one paid attention to, to some, the like sort of flow of the narrative kind of just goes out the window for like 10 minutes in there it's very chaotic and the third one and it's a really small one in the initial scene when they meet john hawks and then it's kind of like on their on, on a hard shoulder and then he's kind of i don't know losing his shit and when he dies it's a very odd moment because there is a jump cut in there and it's almost like he just moves in front of the uh, in in front of the truck, and then there's a jump cut, and you can see the truck kind of moving, and then there's like a smear of blood. And I'm like, it's very jarring. It's kind of like like they didn't want to commit, or maybe it's just like oh, it's it was like a pickup shot at you know, way past principal photography, but it's very very odd. So yeah, that's. I think but, um, yeah. I think body dis uh, dis um, dis what's the word. <laughs> dismemberment dismemberment i think it's a, a nc-17 bang on oh. but at least you know but then at least i i, I don't know maybe <laughs> don't show it but this just let, give, let me hear the sort of the bang or something <laughs> like this but there's but he just steps in front of the in the truck jump cut and and it's like after like they, it's like they cut out exactly like a second of of something you you, you want the fucking uh, what do you call it you don't you want the fucking i'm a go hand. i want i want the fucking <laughs> i think it was long enough to be tasteful but also enough to horrify you <laughs> <laughs> no it's yeah, just a bit fun. jarring but it's not like oh it's a deal breaker for me because it's a five-star movie like come on like but yeah i, I find i find the uh, uh colin farrell thing very interesting because I, I i didn't with the accent should i say i didn't think that ever bothered me in this film maybe because i'm it, I, I, i'm more it's well, not look, that it bothers look, me but it's kind of like i can hear him with his irish twang like potato and i'm like no it's just wow. you know <laughs> wow <laughs> This is full on Conor O'Brien right there. <laughs> this is how he sounds in my head. <laughs> I think it, it comes off super. <laughs> oh my god! It does come off really strong whenever he shouts. That's only when it bothers me. Like in yeah. the climax, he's shouting like wow. it's it's hard to hide. It's really hard to hide. <laughs> like I don't know. Like maybe he's one of those that he's like, but then. For some reason, it kind of applauds that he he always keeps this accent on, and he kind of gets roles that he gets. Like pe people like Shalto Copley, just they cannot hide their accent, and they just get pigeonholed in certain roles. So you know, but hey, anyway. So I think this is it. I think we've done this film justice. Miami Vice is what it is, and in my opinion, it's a masterpiece. And so, in most of our opinions, I think it's it, it's very well deserving of the uh, of, of being called a gem. Um, even I think Carson doesn't even want to admit that he's warmed up to it enough to put it on a shelf. No, <laughs> yes. definitely haven't. For sure, haven't. Uh, it's gonna happen because you two cannot have different opinions. Uh, so it's just how how the universe works. I'm sorry. Like, that's maybe maybe I'll I'll decress my opinion. Maybe I'll. Watch I mean, it apparently again. everyone on here was like, "Oh, I didn't like it at first. Then I rewatched it and I liked it. So maybe it I'll rewatch. I'll like yeah. it. I'm following the narrative. Still, I'm still well, following. I, I guess I'm the only one who, who just watched it initially and just always enjoyed it yeah so I, I guess well, we can't all be on your hats level off, of enlightenment hats off to kevin <laughs> kevin saw the light on the first go <laughs> and then and then we're, we, uh, i was i was yeah. i was at the the right the right crust or crust right. whatever the right word should be 
I mean, it, it took was... it took me a decade, Carson. So good luck. <laughs> so you know, let's let's revisit this in ten years. Kevin's gonna be like, I don't know. This will be like the the, the fucking taxi driver for for Jack. They won't <laughs> let you call in from the retirement home, probably. We'll have to figure out some way around it. Well, anyway, so I think that's it. So Miami Vice is available to rent and buy from all the usual suspects. Um, available to stream on Stars in the UK, apparently. But I, I actually bought it on. Just on buy it. Just buy it. I bought it. I bought it. Um, but it's also in Italy. It's in on Netflix, isn't it? Netflix and Prime for <laughs> and some Prime. reason. Yeah. <laughs> And but that's the theatrical cut. Weirdly enough, the director's cut seems to be only available in the US. I don't understand that either. That considering really. you know you know Black Cat, do you know that yeah. it came out in the UK and the the US and it made so little money that it went direct to DVD in, in Australia. Like it's interesting. Like <laughs> UK is quite a big audience for for him. I just don't understand why we've never received that director's cut. I remember, I mean, yeah. I just, the Black Hat director's cut, I mean, it played on TV here, like, I think, like, yeah. once, and that was about it. Uh, yes, it got removed as well. Played it. Yeah, there it is someone on, it, there it is, really yeah. improved the film. Uh, yeah, so the film is, in, is available in the theatrical cut pretty much everywhere outside the uh, US, and then director, direct, director's cut in the US. Interestingly, it's very like it has a physical release, but the DVD and oh, the Blu-ray release, I think, I think it's one of the sort of oldest Blu-ray releases out there. So it's either severely out of print, and then I don't think the master is good. So I'm hoping that this is going to receive the treatment that Heat received, as in a brand new remastered and a sort of like director director's cut release on 4K and Blu-ray every now and then. Oh no, so. I have it on. I have the director's cut on Blu-ray. And oh it, good, but then no, so, in the UK they, so they, they may actually follow this up then. Because yeah, I don't know, it's it's very odd that it's very it's almost impossible to kind of just get your hands on outside of the US. It's very very odd. I, I will say as well, like considering that, like Arrow, please get on this. I, I'm considering. I'm just fucking. I'm just going to say that considering the thief was an Arrow Arrow video and William Freakins had a few of Live and Die in LA, it would seem very apt for, for Arrow to to do Universal. Well, they have worked with Crimson uh, Peak as well with Gildano Del, Del Toro, mm-hmm. so it's not like it's out of the uh, question. Maybe a fucking good master though. Mm-hmm. And plus, man would probably stand it off, but I think it would be prefer- preferable for many for it to be a criterion. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't, it look, doesn't look like something. It's, 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 a, it's an arrow video to me. Like, this is, it, this fits in arrows. The purest. No, 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 it's no, just, yeah. it looks like no, something that, that the, criterion the, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be a fan of. I, I can see this right, right next to the, from the uh, Criterion collection. I can, I, well, I, I, yeah. I can see that. Okay. And then the, they'll probably well. release both the director's and the theatrical cut on one day. Anyway, so let's just hope this this happens because I'm a strong believer in so in, in physical media being being still a thing. I still champion physical media whenever I can. So you know. What do you think comes next, Jack? Of True Lies Blu-ray. Or, uh, well, Jim Cameron would have to have, have his family kidnapped for to finally fucking do it because you know. Well, he owns a right, isn't he? He owns the masters. He says he he says apparently that you know like the masters are finished and he needs to kind of just sign off on them, which I kind of feel like this is bullshit. Oh, but now yeah. this this is owned owned by Fox now, which is owned by Disney. So I have, and, 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 and Disney has a thing against physical media, so I'm not even sure there's gonna there's gonna be a remastering of anything. They'll just put it on Disney Star or whatever the fuck. Well, D- Disney Stars has a 4K uh, resolution of Unbreakable, but none of yeah. doesn't exist anywhere else. 
So it's just upscaled. Well, this was supposed to be a physical release, and then they, they didn't. So, you know. This is it for the episode, this episode of the Uncut Jones podcast. So where can we all find you on social media? Kevin. Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at Cool Kevin or uh, Twitter at CKKevin24. Nicolo. You can follow me on Twitter at NikiGra97 and on Letterboxd at Nicolo Grasso. And you can watch my short films and videos on YouTube and Vimeo at Enjoy the Movies. Cool. Jack. You can find me on both Letterboxd and Twitter with the username at JackLukeSharp. And Carson. You can find me on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews or on Letterboxd, just Carson Tamar. Cool. And you can find me at Talk About Film on Twitter. You can also read all our stuff on Clapper at www.clapperltd.co.uk. You can also read my stuff on flashonfilm.com if you so choose. And then, you know, you can also follow the show on Twitter and on Instagram at UncutGemsPod. So make sure to follow, like, and retweet our stuff because it helps. Also, remember, it's going to be a Twitter giveaway, giving away a copy of the Cannonball Run. So stay tuned for this. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can also send us an email at uncutgemspod at gmail.com. So if you want to sound off about Miami Vice or any other thing we've covered or literally just anything else, this is how you do it. So you can also support the show at ko-fi.com, uh, that's ko slash fi.com slash uncutgemspod and help us keep the lights on with a one-off donation. And you can also, uh, if you want to receive more content from us at Clapper, you can also uh, think about joining our brand new Patreon channel over at patreon.com slash clapperltd. That's patreon.com slash clapperltd. So be sure to tune in next week when we will be fine. Well, we'll be talking about what are we talking about? Oh, yes, Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain. So don't miss it um, because it's going to be wild. And for now, I hope you all have a fabulous day. We'll see you next week. Bye bye.